What up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Ben, here to introduce this week's episode. Uh, I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with somebody whose blog post I've been reading for quite some time, somebody I've been conversing with on Twitter for quite some time, somebody who is a unique thinker in the Bitcoin space. He definitely ruffles some feathers from time to time. He's ruffled my feathers before, uh, including last week, which was the impetus uh, for me reaching out and hopping on the mic with him. Uh, this week's episode of Tales from the Crypt, I sit down with Paul Stork, the creator of Truthcoin.info, uh, which is a wealth of knowledge, a bunch of hours-long blog posts that I highly recommend you read. Been around for a while. Um, Paul and I dive into some of them in this conversation. We talk about uh, the fee market, uh, the concept of drive change, which is his idea for a blind merge mind side chain that he believes would help a fee market develop. Uh, that's a controversial topic uh, because of the way miners could steal the coins, but we talk about all the scenarios and, and the disincentives for miners to do such a thing and, and the ways in which that can be prevented. On top of that, we talk about his hive mind project, which is the reason for the idea behind drive chains. Uh, he started with hive mind and worked backwards from there. Um, we we went at it. For, we talked for two, we didn't go at it. We had a conversation for two and a half hours, uh, most of which uh, Paul was speaking, which is which is fine by me, because um, again, this is somebody I've been following for quite some time, and I'm very fascinated by by his ideas, particularly around. Uh, the cost of, of proof of stake versus proof of work and why proof of stake is probably not that advantageous in the long run or uh, less costly than proof of work. I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. A lot of topics covered. Um, this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. And if you don't, let me tell you about them, all right? They're letting you do a bunch of things, all right? You sign up, you can get their boost card, all right? You get their boost card, you put your your signature on there, a little Bitcoin sign on there, you get the boost card delivered to you, and then you have it, you have money on your account, and then you can activate their boost. I just saved $5 at the grocery store the other day, activating my $5 uh, grocery store boost. On top of that, they have partners like Chick-fil-A, uh, DoorDash, Nike from time to time, Whole Foods from time to time, bunch of partner merchants that you can use, uh, excuse me, you can uh, save money at when you're, when you're shopping at them with your cash card. On top of that, uh, they're letting you stack sats. You can stack sats, sell sats, receive sats, send sats. Uh, I sent some sats to, to Wasabi to mix the other day. Um, yeah, sending it. You can send it off in, in Wasabi if you want to. On top of that, uh, they have Cash App Investing, which is new. All right. Uh, we know you like to stack stacks, stack sats, excuse me. If you want to stack stonks, Cash App Investing is letting you do that. All right. If you're. Your favorite stock is a little too expensive. You can stack as little as one dollar. You can stack a sliver of a stonk. Uh, on top of that, there's no four to five day waiting periods to start investing. Since Cash App is connected directly to your bank account, you can start investing today. All right, and Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square uh, and member SIPC. Okay, use the code Stacking Sats when you download the Cash App if you haven't already. That's one word: S T A C K I N G S A T S. Uh, you're going to get $10, and then Cash App is going to be so kind to send $10 to our great friends at Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. Don't listen to that dirtbag, Al. He's a scummy dude. Enjoy this episode. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, 
all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Friday afternoon. Uh, very excited for this conversation. I think this is going to be a long one. Uh, if the pre-interview conversation is any indication, it is going to be a long and very uh, interesting podcast. I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to Paul Stork, making his second appearance on the podcast. Yes, I remember that now. Yeah, second appearance. Yeah, I remember my line from the first one, things that you didn't even know you didn't want. <laughs> right. About Ethereum. Freaks that don't remember the first appearance was uh, the rabbit hole recap on the roof of the Bitcoin 2019 conference. Um, Paul made a a guest appearance uh, to talk about proof of stake. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. It's three months away. It's three months away. Ethereum, it's three months from now. They'll have it all worked out. Yeah. And everything will work perfectly. And it's you just have to keep in mind that it's right around the corner any day it's coming. now. It's coming. 2020. That's what they say. Um, yeah, it's going to be quarter quarter three of 2020, quarter two of 2020. Yeah, I heard January 3rd at one point, like a few months ago, but they keep pushing it back. It is sad that we have no real way of communicating to people just how often they have said that it is like right around the corner. They literally said that before Ethereum had even like released in like 20... 15 or something they were like oh we'll do proof of stake like really yeah i believe the first um their first uh goal pre-launch for proof of stake was like 18 months after launch if i recall correctly i've actually been keeping a thread uh since august 2017 yeah the twitter thread the twitter thread of like the uh the steam to Mm -hmm. quote about that's the most beautiful it just it will just keep paying forever. I mean, that is the best way. That is the best way of convincing of just and not convincing people. It's not so much because they could eventually theoretically do it, but it's hard to imagine a point of view having any less credibility than that one at this this particular yeah, point. That is uh my magnum opus of a thread. And actually it's a good segue. Yeah, that's a it's a wonderful thread. It is it is really yeah, great. And it's a good se- one of the best one of the best threads on, on crypto twitter ever, oh, thank i think you. well you have one of the best bl- you have You're one welcome. of the best blogs uh in all of crypto and <laughs> i know it's very weird it's a very weird blog as i was telling you before it's a kind of like it's like a kind of uh, art therapy or something where i have to just read about what people are talking about and then i'm like i don't really agree that i take notes and then i edit them into a blog and the blog posts will reach paid hundreds of pages of notes some of the posts are more than 100 pages long and they've broken into sections or something. The one about fraud proofs is like 48 pages long. And it's just like me dumping stuff out of my head because it's driving me crazy. <laughs> but people end up appreciating it, which I like. And people, people like different parts of it. It's, it's very interesting. It's different people have quoted it at, at, at points. Adam Beck quoted it a long time ago. And also Gavin Andreessen and... Roger Veer, like all these different people will, will, they can find something in it they like. <laughs> so I don't know, I must be doing something right or wrong, depending on how you, how you think about any of that. No, I was telling you, it's 
And then the other posts, other posts are like completely, I never hear anyone talk about um, some of them. Some of them have like a controversial element is proof of work, proof of stake. Yeah. People, people love nothing is cheaper than proof of work. I, I wrote one about ASIC boost that was like controversial. <laughs> and then some like no one really ever talks about. Well, let's, uh, uh, let's touch on like proof of stake isn't cheaper and isn't better than proof of work since we were talking about Ethereum. Uh, it's a, like so my whole. Yes. Yeah. I think it's important. Yes. Continue. Yeah. Like I, 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 I think it's funny that um, Ethereum has been trying so hard to transition to proof of stake when uh, it, it's, it seems to me to not be a valid consensus mechanism or a worthwhile consensus mechanism. And they are sort of digging this hole, trying to make this transition to this new consensus, consensus mechanism. And it may not even be worthwhile when they finally get there. So let's dissect that blog post in particular. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the deepest critique of Ethereum that one can make is that the community, it doesn't really have it. it the culture rewards like, kind of these Hail Mary pass kind of um, very um, optimistic <laughs> sort of way of, uh, of doing things that someone somewhere will invent something to fix this, which is, you know, I, I admire the optimism and I mean that sincerely, but it's also like, you know, you can't just say someone will invent something to solve this problem. Someone actually has to invent it at some point. And Proof of stake, there's a very long, it came out in like 2010. You can read about this on bitcointalk.org. If you go into the ancient archives of bitcointalk.org where every crypto idea was once posted at some point before being rediscovered, um, you can find it. And people were very enthusiastic about it at first, but then problems started to emerge. And then eventually Andrew Polster wrote, I think in 2012, something on proof of stake where he argued that in practice because of stake grinding it just became proof of work and so it was ultimately pointless but people tried to get around that by then they they didn't really understand the substance of what Andrew Polster was saying and they said oh stake grinding is the problem so now we'll solve stake grinding and we'll do this slashing or we'll do these other things and they were still like trying to solve proof of stake, even though it was, it had a lot of, you know, conceptual holes in it. And so what I set out to do is I set out to just say that since it's peer to peer and anyone can join or leave the network at any time, there's no privileged person in like a monopolized position, no matter what you do, these new blocks need to be found or produced by someone. And so whatever that is, it will involve people doing effort to game their chances. And so I tried to set out and say, look, even if you fix all these problems, you would still have this Andrew Polstra like regression thing. And then I laid out all these examples about how it was not only, not only would it happen, but it had already happened with in, in um, um, Dan Larimer's delegated proof of stake and then, and then the locking up the idea of locking up the bonds yeah, that, in this so you could flash them later is that bit shares so i wrote this big essay not yeah uh yes that was the era of bit shares this is like late 2014 early 2015 and so um <laughs> but then again this like it's like it doesn't really work people who are in the 
you know, people get very optimistic and they have wishful thinking, especially when money is concerned. This happens to Bitcoiners as well. It happens to everyone. I think definitely the, the biggest critique of, Bit, of Bitcoin ever is if you watch the Flat Earth documentary and you just see these people and they're just so optimistic and then they say things like, how long do you think it will be until, you know, the Flat Earth theory is taught in schools or is, you know, and then they'll be like, yeah, anytime. It's just around the corner. We just need to just keep, everyone just keep, you know, keep hodling the flat earth theory. And you're like, oh no, like this is what people can believe. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the Ethereum has this optimism and they're willing to try this, these, these weird ideas. It, it's extremely complex and it ultimately achieves basically nothing because ultimately you'll just waste a different resource. It was proof of work wastes, you know, in a lot of quotation marks around the word waste, silicon and electrical energy. Um, even if proof of stake worked and there was no way of gaming it, which is something that I think no one believes, but even if it did, you would have situations where lots of working capital was uh, locked up. And we can talk about that, the money market. It's ironic that Ethereum has now evolved to the point where it has, uh, it's gone from being having absolutely nothing at all to having, you know, the nothing plus the Dow, which was a disaster. And now it has these weird, very thin, it has like kind of a money market. But the money market actually proves in a weird way that I was right all along about, because now if you have ETH, you can kind of lend it out using these weird loans. I mean, at least you can for now, maybe they will decide to pull the plug on all this because it's, it's just like, it's, it's been having a rough couple of weeks. Yeah. They um, had a, uh, but you can, lend. yes, they had, they had one of their dApps, somebody executed a trade and basically stole a bunch of ETH from the, from the decentralized financial app. Right. Yes, they have, they have this, they have, I don't fully understand it. I have to, to warn everyone, but probably no one does, but it's something like they have these areas where you can, for very short periods of time, loan ETH or loan other assets and trade them. And those assets have market prices. And some people are using those market prices as inputs for collateral. So they're like mark to market type situation. And so, as I understand it, it's possible to borrow a lot of stuff, anything, ETH or whatever, for a very short while. You put up some collateral, you can borrow, you say, I only need to borrow this for like a day. And so I only need a small amounts worth of interest. You know, you borrow all this stuff and then you sell it or you buy it or you do something to manipulate a price and that causes this cascade of basically margin calls um, on other people and you can then bet on those and use that to your advantage. And again, I have to stress that I don't really understand it, but the point is that the, they have an area where you can, the, it's now possible to loan ETH and earn a return on your money, uh, which is a lot like how the U S money markets work. And we have many of them. And if you have a checking account or a savings account and you want to earn higher interest rate, you can put your money in it money market mutual account and notwithstanding 2008 financial crisis in which something very bizarre happened uh, that I 
could explain that there was a weird kind of run on money market mutual funds because they were not FDIC insured, but there was no reason to think they're, it's a very long story, but basically you can get a higher interest rate if you just want to say, look, I really don't need this cash, but uh, why don't you use it for something? But um, it's, you know, you see what I mean? This is like a checking savings. It's like the next thing. And then with with the proof of stake on Ethereum, you're supposed to be able to lock up money uh, huge amounts of money, much more than is spent on entire mining infrastructure. Uh, and then you would, um, this money would be deleted if you didn't do the stake things properly. But so much money would be locked up that it would end up wasting just as much of society's resources as as would if you just spent that money building a, a power plant that produced all the power used by all the proof of work miners. And in practice, I don't even think that any of this would work because proof of stake gives you an incentive to try various schemes like uh, denial of service attacking people to make it look like they aren't holding up their end. And if you really just, uh, it's possible that they will eventually figure it out, but it's also possible that all the serious people who would have reviewed it have stopped paying attention a long time ago and uh, insist that this is another problem that, uh, shares had, which is that the design would keep changing. And so you'd just be like, oh, uh, when we you know come back when it stops changing. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that perplexes me the most is how people can still, uh, be confident that it's right around the corner when, when the specs have changed and the timelines changed. And, uh, there was Casper and then constant, there's a bunch of different implementations that they're trying to go after at the same time it's all very confusing i don't know if that's on purpose um but that's what i really liked about your blog post in particular is you point out like the whole the whole virtue signal of moving to proof of stake is because it's more energy efficient less capital intensive and better for the environment Uh, and you make a very compelling point that actually at the end of the day when you're locking up all this stake like you just said you'll be expending more energy than than is needed in a proof of work. System. Yeah, it's not, it is right. It's not necessarily energy, but it, it's something it's, you have less capital available for funding projects. So you, so it means that economic growth would be slower and what's really better for the environment. You know, if we invent something like uh, cold fusion or, or just hot fusion. Now we, someone is building something in Europe where it's like regular hot fusion, but <laughs> in, there's some kind of chamber where it's, but the point is, you know, with, with fusion energy, you can use, there's like uh, some isotope in seawater that could power the earth for like 3000 times longer than the expected life of the universe or something. So more than enough energy for all of uh, mankind for, until the sun, you know, explodes in 5 billion years or so. And that would be, unbelievably cheap and then you could have all these things coming from cheap energy whatever the cheap energy source is if it's this fusion idea or something else you could have a you know vertical indoor farming and all this other stuff so what's really better for the environment uh to invent that technology like one year earlier than you otherwise would or you know and not and don't do the proof of work mining but have this technology be delayed a year or do proof of work mining, but have this technology be invented a year earlier or two years earlier or whatever. Um, so even on the in criterion of environmentalism, it it's not 
clear that proof of stake is any better. But even if you just say, if you just count up the waste in pure dollar terms, then it really can't be the same because the waste is equal to the block reward. Uh, so the block reward uh, should probably have led with this for anyone who has no idea what we're even talking about and where this is even going. But the original, yeah, I was like a total nobody. And then I wrote this post and Adam Back quoted in a Bitcoin talk. And then um, people started to read my blog where I write about how the block reward, every Bitcoin block has a certain amount, right now 12.5 Bitcoin plus the fees. And those new blocks, you know, they're worth a certain amount of of money, even in US dollar terms, you just multiply by the exchange rate and they're worth whatever it is. So right now you take $10,000 and 12.5 plus one and for fees, you have 13.5 BTC and then you have $135,000. So it's like $135,000. It's like a briefcase full of cash that has $135,000 of cash in it and you're auctioning it off. That's really what the blockchain is like. It's saying whoever finds the next block, gets this cash. And then you have all these people fighting over how to get it. And they're basically bidding it up. And what do you think the final bid price is going to be? Of course, it's going to be like, you know, $134.99. It's going to be like bid up right up to what that, um, that number is. And that uh, is why it doesn't make any difference if you if you swap it from proof of work or proof of stake or really proof of anything else. Bram Cohen came very close. Uh, um, uh, excuse me. He said if we had a proof of space and time uh, because you had this, uh, he had this idea where you would use all this unused hard drive space. So he built this way of tapping hard drive space that wasn't used to uh, try to do blockchain consensus, which is uh, extremely interesting. But the way it works is by making unused hard drive space valuable and then immediately wasting all of that value. Um, so if that were successful, all it would mean is something like David Vorick's project, the SIA mm -hmm. project, which is like a, uh, a very interesting project where you can sell your unused hard drive space all that would mean is that his project would probably be successful and would probably create value. And then that value would be the value that proof of space and time would destroy. So it would still be equally um, wasteful because the, you are just auctioning off this briefcase full of cash. Yeah, so you, you're referring to Chia particularly? Brancom's? Uh... Yes. Okay. Yes. So... Yeah, so you're just basically getting at the fact that the cost of production is very close to the value of this briefcase. Yeah, this ended up being summarized as this MC equals MR argument, marginal cost equals marginal revenue, which is something that is taught to like economics undergraduates or high school students like very early on, um, which is just that the blocks have this worth. And so it wouldn't make any sense if you... If, the, if you could earn a ton of money by making these blocks and, and it was cheap to do so, that situation doesn't make sense. You sell the blocks for $10,000 each and they cost $100 to produce. You know, why more people would want to get in right. on that yeah. scheme? 
you definitely you just easily make a lot of money. So those people will come in and they will do whatever it is you are doing and then some. And that is where all the waste will start to leak leak out. Yes. That's another thing that, that post you get to it'll be like an equal if there is uh, a moment of disequilibrium, that waste will get spread out and, and filled in in some places. Somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, well, it's like with proof of work where it doesn't, you don't know if it's, some of it is electricity, but, you know, that's actually not, that's not all of it. Of course, you have to make the chips, people have to run, there's labor involved, there is, you know, the air circulation and all this other stuff, you know, they uh, have to maintain the chips, you have to cool the chips. So mining is not just electricity it's a lot of things um so all these things there's no guarantee that they'll take just one form as i mentioned proof of stake if you have to there's kind of a theory where you put up working capital and but you would also need to follow the rules of the blockchain system and um uh, you need to produce blocks when you're told, otherwise you lose your stake. So people, who's to say that people won't il- build elaborate systems for uh, denial of service attacking you and stopping you from doing that? Because remember, it's a huge amount of money are at stake, uh, in no pun intended. But these, you have a lot of money that's being earned because it's 13.5 every 10 minutes, Bitcoin, if you say 12.5 plus one in fees and you say that Ethereum would be comparable. So then it's $10,000 for Bitcoin, then it's 135,000. We're talking like 100, 200,000 per 10 minutes. So there's 144 blocks a day. So now we're two orders of magnitude higher already. So we're talking like 20, $30 million a day is what you can earn if you're the only miner. <clears throat> so... In proof of work, you want to mine really efficiently, put everyone else out of business, you get the 20, 30 million for yourself. In proof of stake, you, if you can shove, you can find a way to shove people off. It's 20, 30 million dollars a day in revenue for you. So, who, you know, what is it per year? 365 days in a year, you know, two more orders of magnitude, if not more. So, we're talking unbelievable amounts of money. You know, yeah, you would be, there would be professional people like figuring out exactly how to take other people off the network or exactly how to manipulate the randomness used to assign who finds blocks. This is what I think people don't understand. Similar thing with, um, I mean, I don't know the status of Emin Gutsire's avalanche thing, but he said something like it would be a proof of work competitor and some people he was in a conversation I was in and we were talking about it. And, you know, I was like, what about civil attacks or whatever? And he, you know, he said that I, at the time, and I don't, this was a six or eight months ago. He was like, well, we have this, this part closed source because we don't want people stealing it. Right. And I kind of laughed too. (laughs) That was my reaction. I was like, okay, well, it's a non-starter. Okay. Maybe so. Right. It is kind of a non-starter. And, uh, you know, maybe he'll publish it and then we can, or has published it and I didn't notice and we can look at it more. But what I was trying to give everyone in that conversation, the impression is that this is a huge amount of money. It's theoretically just let's give it the benefit of the doubt and we'll say 
avalanche replaces Ethereum and Bitcoin and everything, it's and the US dollar, and it's in this position where you have just the rewards that come in to distribute the coins or to process the fees. Um, we'll just give everything the benefit of the doubt and we'll just say that all that's outrageously successful. Well, now you have the situation where, you know, even with today's numbers, it's, you know, millions of dollars per day, 10, $20 million, $30 million per day. And if the price of Bitcoin goes up by 20 or 30%, then it's 20 or 30% more, more than that. Obviously if it goes down, it's less, but you know, a lot of people in mining believe in Bitcoin and they are, sort of half speculating that they, they th that it has potential and that if they do a good job mining, it will continue to go up. They can get more of a return. So, you know, this is a huge amount of money, you know, billions of dollars per year. And the proof of stake is that is a kind of theory that just people running, people will just volunteer, run software on their computer. And then it will just be this happy equilibrium where no one will try to seize more of this gigantic pie for themselves by just, you know, some people will be easier to now source attack than others. It'll be like mining where some people got a business first. The least efficient miners will go out of business first. There will be some new thing that will evolve around proof of stake that will involve it to work. There will involve it, people spending, they'll involve people spending basically the $2 billion that they earn It'd be just like auctioning the briefcase. And uh, so this is the point I've tried to convey. And I, I'm sorry, we did actually go on quite a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned uh, earlier that it's funny in the, and I don't remember if this was before the, you hit record, but people come in on the blog and I actually, Vitalik and Jay Kwan on the Nothing is Cheaper Than Proof of Work, I thought that I had convinced them. It seemed, if you read the comments, that they ended up agreeing, or they even said something like, well, of course, we've always believed that kind of line. I think Vitalik may have said something like that. Jaquan eventually was like, oh, do you think you can help us solve this problem? Which is like a different response. But those are the big people pushing proof of stake. And then that was like 2015, and then I saw them in, I don't remember I saw them in consensus May 2016, and I was like in New York City. And I was like, why are you guys still doing <laughs> proof of stake because I thought that you were convinced by what I had to say. And then they were like, well, we, I think actually Vlad Zampir said something like, yeah, but you know, we're, we, we're going to just like keep working on it because we think we can improve it. Yeah, dude's insufferable. But kind of shrugged and was kind of was like shrugging and kind of saying like, okay. And I was like, oh, well, how much? <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's kind of funny, you know, like, and, uh, all right, great. Well, good luck with that, you know. So how much does a probabilistic nature of SHA-256 proof-of-work mining. Is that sort of the, the differentiator there, the probabilistic nature of that? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Uh, what's nice about SHA-256 and mining is that, yeah, it's very hard to inject randomness into something, but the hash function is already random on its interval. So that takes care of that. But the really cool thing about proof of work is that all of the work done by everyone, all the waste is actually measurable in the form of the low hashes. And it's very imperfect. It is not perfect at all, but you have some measurement of it. And since the hashes are in the linked list, this Haber-Stornetta thing, where each block has the hash of the previous block, 
the work accumulates. So it's quite ingenious. You know, Satoshi obviously was quite a genius and he worked this out. Uh, and so the, even though they're all equally wasteful, oftentimes, see, here's the thing. If you prove a mistake and then people denial of service attack someone, and then someone says, look, I was denial of service attacked, you have no way of knowing if they really were or not. You just have their evidence, which you don't know how to interpret. You don't know the context. Maybe they denial a service attack themselves. Maybe they unplug their router, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe they are just, maybe they have no idea what they're talking about and they're just crazy. You know, they could be schizophrenic. They could, you'd have no idea. So you have no idea what's going on. But with proof of work, you really do know. Um, you do know all the headers and their hashes and they are all very low. So all the work is piled into one easily measurable thing, um, which is, which is ingenious um, and it's great. And it's a really clever thing about the way it's all set up is that it's very, all the work is done on the headers, which are these very short little 80 byte things that, uh, that uh, you know, I think it's like 4.7 megabytes per year to get an entire year of Bitcoin headers. So it's like a photograph or something. You can easily get all the headers um, and check and check the work on them. If you, so all the, like, you know, 99% of the effort of constructing the block can be checked with, you know, uh, you know, 0.01% of the, the effort. So, you, that's, it's, so it's very ingeniously all set up. Um, with proof of stake, I, again, it's not clear that that's the case because, again, the design keeps changing, but you have to have these, um, you know, it's funny that talking about this, we, I almost wanted to have, um, who is it that, I think Eric Wall was, he posted, it's terrible if it was someone else, but someone posted a thing where they said that they actually thought it was, um, there there was still a difference in the type of waste, and we were going to debate it on some podcasts, but I forgot about it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Eric <laughs> But that would have been nice. I could have... Um, had my notes for that and we could have uh, come on here and done it. If it, this is such an old issue though. I think for most people are just like so tired of hearing about it. Yeah. I was almost tired of talking about it because people are like, it's going on for so long. They it's, it is, I, I think it is an insult to people's intelligence that they keep saying that it's, I mean, I know that software is like this. I feel the exact same way. You know, whenever anyone produces a piece of software, they're always like, well, it's almost done. It's almost done, and then it takes you know like thirty-seven years later. They you know it's the first release. There's even that joke about if you if you wait until it's the first release is perfect, then you waited too long, uh, things like that. Um, so I realize I understand that it takes a long time, but there does seem to be a total like it just seems to be like an insulting character. Yeah, I agree, but and I think people in Ethereum like this. The other thing, Ethereum is. It's it's doing like some kind of clever mind games where it's like pretending that it's not a Bitcoin competitor until it is, and then hey, you know there's no way that that, that stuff where they get up on sorry about they that. like dress up in cop. I lost you at um, we're still recording. I lost you at uh, they do funny stuff like dancing on stuff. Oh, there you go. Yeah, they do. Like, so why why do they why do they do that? You know, like is it because they're crazy? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I think they. I think they know that they have to appear like unthreatening to Bitcoin until like the opportune moment. <laughs> I think it's like a yeah, trick. Yeah, it's 
I think they do it on purpose. A lot of the things they do have, they're like, it's almost like so dumb that you can't, you have to be worried that, oh, what's going on? There's some some scheme, some scheme. Yeah, so, I mean, it's always seemed very schemey to me at least. Uh, I remember going yeah. to a, a consensus meetup here in New York in the summer of 2017. And they were like basically begging people, companies, startups that are well-established already to launch ICOs and just felt like, ah, you're really going to tell people to launch blockchains for their companies? And obviously that a lot of people went down that path. We had the ICO boom and bust, and that's no longer a narrative. They're no longer convincing people to launch ICOs on Ethereum. Now it's DeFi. Um, but one thing he's... I and, know. But one thing he said, like the thing... It really irks me is, and what I'm really happy you said about Bitcoin and proof of work, particularly, is that proof of work's imperfect. SHA-256 is imperfect, and that's something that Bitcoiners and Bitcoin as a project is up front with. Like, hey, it's not perfect, but it works. And it seems like with what they're trying to do with proof of stake is create a perfect system, which I just heuristically think is is impossible. Yeah, I think that's true. Um well, yeah, this this is this is something that's been said a lot about Bitcoin that it a lot of people had really uh, almost everyone had hard time understanding it because it's just this crazy scheme and previous stuff was kind of it was like where you needed to break a hash function or a signature or something in order to break it. So it had like perfect privacy and perfect everything, but it had a server to mitigate double spends. But other than that, it was perfect. And then Bitcoin came along and it's this really weird other thing. And it is very different. And it is this weird kind of Hayekian thing where it's kind of like a Sly roundabout way. Trial and trial and error. And it, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, it is very sly, but yeah, I know what you're referring to. No, it's a- <laughs> yeah, Hayek, I think Hayek was right about that. Uh, it's, he, he was a very good, he knew culture, I think. He knew that culture evolved slowly due to all these little decisions that people made and that if it reaches, if people's opinions reach like an equilibrium, you can't get out of it. You needed you needed a new. He knew you needed a new subversive thing that the minority could use as it slowly became more popular. And but see, that's the same slyness that I'm talking about when you see people in costumes on Ethereum stage, and you're just like, what is you know? Is this are, are we being like you know who is who's scamming who here? Because this is just so absurd that it almost can't be right. Uh, it almost can't be legit. <laughs> so that's the only thing that has me worried about Ethereum is how crazy it is. Are you that worried about it? Well, I think that money has very strong network effects. And I think that the differences between, you know, I think if you had to group like the yen, the US dollar, Ethereum and Bitcoin into groups, you know, you would have Ethereum and Bitcoin in one group and then all the fiat currencies in another group. So I think the differences between crypto and fiat are much more profound than even the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I do think that if Ethereum became more popular, um, it would 
uh, be on a sort of a path to success. But fortunately for anyone who uh, dislikes Ethereum, it, it doesn't really seem to actually be, if you look at like Google Trends and things, uh, almost everyone who's, like everyone is sort of, Ethereum has sort of Bitcoin, but it doesn't go the other way around and stuff like that. But I do think it's theoretically yeah. possible. Oh. I mean, I mean, think about this. One way of putting it is to say, is to reformulate the question and say, is it the case that no matter what mistakes the BTC community makes, it will inevitably triumph? And I think the answer to that question is that it, that it is possible to make a mistake that causes BTC to fail. I don't think that its success is completely well, inevitable. I've been even though it's BTC's game to lose. Yeah, but I've been saying this for a while now. Uh, wouldn't the failure of Bitcoin erode confidence in the whole uh, idea of a cryptocurrency, right? It was... I do think it would, yes. I've said similar things, but I think those someone clever could come up with a way. I mean, one thing is a hard fork of Bitcoin. Uh, if, if the Victor you know, project, the project that triumphed over BTC, um, you know, if it was a hard fork and shared the UTXO set, most of the people, you know, it takes a long time for most people to split their coins. It was very interesting. I liked watching. You could watch, I think it was forks.network, maybe. I think forks.monitor. Uh, was that James? Yeah, or I think uh, Jameson Lop or, me, or someone. I, I should really not say because I can't remember. I can never remember whose name is associated with what. I'm terrible. I was forgetting that and giving credit to the wrong people. But the, you could watch the extent to which the UTXOs were the same because BCH split off from BTC at August 2017. And then at that moment, the UTXO set was 100% identical. They didn't have replay protection, but right? They, yeah, they intentionally did add replay protection, I think. they So they the transaction... This is what makes it even more interesting, which is that the transaction replay protection was on by default. So if you made tr any transaction at all, even if you just sent BTC to yourself, um, it would split, it would count the chains as split. So if you had 10 BTC, uh, you had the UTXO that had 10 coins in it at the time of the fork, you'd end up with 10, one that had 10 BTC and one that had 10 BCH. And then if you just spent one of the, if you spent like 0.01 BTC, you spend that somewhere and then you have 0.01 going to that destination and then 0.99 going back to you as change. It looked as though you split the full 10. Interesting. Um, and so it greatly overestimated the amount of splitting just looking at this UTXO divergence. So the UTXO divergence was Oh, just one way of looking at how much could, in, in the most extreme case, how many, how separated have the communities gotten? And for a very long time, it was less than, much less than 50%. It was, you know, mostly it was the same. <laughs> it was the same owners and the same people, even though there was very loud disagreement online, of course. It was mostly, mostly the same people who are BTC people and BCH people, uh, judging by that criterion of did you own any and you had that also misestimated various other things so some people were on record 
I believe Eric Voorhees, although again, I'm getting all my names mixed up, so I can't remember who has said whatever, but I think Eric Voorhees said that he sold and then rebought and then sold or something. At various times, he said that he owned different amounts of <laughs> BCH or something publicly. And the point is not to, you know, critique or appraise or whatever any of those decisions, but the point is just that that makes it look as though it's more split than it really is, because if he intentionally moves the coins around and then unmoves them so that his accounting position is that he owns, he's back to owning similar portions of BTC and BCH. Now he's back to being equal, but in the meantime, he split a bunch of UTXOs. So it looks as though they diverged, even though they did not. So the real communities, the bottom line is the real communities were more similar than even that metric suggested, which it suggested that they were very similar. And so to your point about would a failure of BTC um, like uh, make imperil all the other projects. You could have one way of getting, you, you could have different ways of getting around that. And one of them would be to have this hard fork succeed. And then you could say, well, almost everyone, almost every single person who was in BTC is in this project. And so only a few people who intentionally split their coins in a speculative sense or who didn't hear about it in time or something so I think that that's one way, but there are, I think there are other ways. There are other ways you could just say, you could have some pretext or an excuse. You could say this new project has something that BTC could not have because of some reason that it could be a false reason or a true reason, but you could just, you just need a story that says, well, I took what was great from Bitcoin and then I changed X. Uh, so I think it's still possible to get around that story where you just say that, you just have to attribute BTC's failure to something else, or you have to say that this new thing, while it's not Bitcoin, it is. Uh, it was so overwhelmingly overlapped with Bitcoin that you know 95% of the coins and 99% of the users came along, and it just then you can call it Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever, and you can just say that it was a rough transition, but it was basically the same. So I think it's possible to get around that, although I do think that that is an element of it. I think, I think it's not the case that BTC is totally immune to errors, like completely. You know, if, if there's no error that BTC can make that will lead to its death. I think that... That's naive. Definitely it's yeah. possible. No, it's... I think it's definitely possible to commit suicide with BTC. Well, it's, it's important to uh, be upfront with that too, right? And actually, that's sort of the reason why we're talking right now is the uh, the thread I wrote about Jevons Paradox and UTXOs and potential development of the fee market. That could be one of the ways Bitcoin dies if uh, people are uh, ardent about having a hard 21 million supply cap and a fee market doesn't develop. Uh, maybe that's the case where you have a hard fork where uh, that adds uh, tail emissions, um, and that is the the successor. Yes, I'm really I'm I'm quite proud of the fact that it never even occurred to me when I wrote that piece to write about adding inflation. That's the thing that people always uh, they run to, uh, and I didn't even it didn't even occur to me, and it doesn't appear anywhere in the in the piece. So if you want a piece complaining about long run security that does not have anything in it about violating the 21 million coin limit, uh, even though probably people should at least talk about it. I mean, every idea you should talk about because every idea could be a good idea. 
But uh, yeah, I wrote this piece, Security Budget in the Long Run. And that is what we were talking about on Twitter. And it has a, it is a great, um, it's a very interesting piece. It does a lot of, uh, it, did, it, it had a lot of like interesting, uh, people interpreted it in very different ways. I mean, one way is that you have these, it was, I think it was misinterpreted a lot of ways. Uh, one was that you have these people who think that proof of work is very wasteful still, and they complain about how much energy proof of work wastes. And this piece goes right up to those people and just kind of slaps <laughs> them in the face. Is that you were not, we need to waste way more than, than we currently are. And there's nowhere near enough. And so those people are just, I think, just completely stunned. Most Bitcoiners are not in that group, but anyone who was would just have no idea what to say. <laughs> They'd be like speechless. But another thing is that people have been trained to respond to any complaint about fees um, in a certain way. They're trained to say that lightning will bring them down or that uh, channel factories will bring the fees down. Uh, and that is the opposite of what the piece is saying. The piece is saying that fees will be too low. And so this puts people who have been jumping into that line of response, it throws them into a kind of, uh, they're like the opposite can of I, the point there. Can I, I push back on the lightning thing a bit? Yes. You so can, lightning... Yes. When I think of lower, like, I think we do need higher fees at the base level if we do want to keep the 21 million supply cap and uh, entice miners to keep mining the chain. Uh, but when people say Lightning will bring lower fees, is is it lower fees on Lightning? So when they're transacting on the Lightning network on the second layer, fees will be lower, but necessarily not necessarily saying uh, the creation of the HT um, LC would would be the fee uh, creating that. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. I say that in the piece. I say like the immediate effect is to reduce demand for the block space, but the long-term effect is to make it easier for people to tolerate high layer one fees because they would do most of their transacting on the Lightning Network and so then they would be able to uh, so yeah, you're completely 100% right about that. But it's just a lot of the people responding to the post on Twitter or whatever, people are just kind of used to thinking about the fee conversation that way. And this is the opposite of how the fee conversation normally goes. I'm saying that the fees are too low. That, and there's another issue is, of course, that the word fee is used in two completely different senses, which is annoying. It's used as a, a price and as a, a revenue. So, like, you know, you That's have a very a, interesting point. Uh, yeah, Walmart has low prices, but it has high revenue because it makes a lot of sales. But uh, Steinway and Sons, it's, uh, you buy a hundred and seventy-five thousand dollar piano. Uh, that the price is very high, but I don't know if their revenue. I would guess their revenue is much lower than Walmart's by by quite a bit. So fees are one sense used the price, and I try to only use fee rate in the piece when I talk about that, but I mentioned this explicitly. But yeah, what I'm talking about in the piece is revenues being too low. The amount of money we pay miners is too low. And not necessarily, in making no, necess not necessarily making any comment about the, the price, although of course, price times quantity sold equals revenue. Uh, so, but they are totally different units. So there's one is the Satoshi per byte fee rate, 
or as I prefer to, I prefer to price it in dollars because it makes a lot more sense that way. But it's like dollars per transaction is really a better way to, to that, think about it. Is that viable in the long term though? Like what if we go to a closed loop Bitcoin economy? I think it still is because you just say that there are, there are people in people, in the economics profession, there's like ways to deal with that because of all the these problems with how do you ex- compare money supply with different countries that have different currencies, forex. So there's this idea of purchasing power parity, and you can like you see so you can say something like it's possible to construct a statement that goes something like you know the the money supply the euro's money supply increased from whatever ten trillion to twenty trillion, and then you just say. US dollar purchasing power parity, or you say some other thing. So you can convert them all into comparable units so that people can understand what's going on. Even though, of course, the euro money supply isn't in US dollars, it's it's in euros. <laughs> so, but it's still possible to compare them all. And it's what's important to keep in mind is that when the there's a difference between the block subsidy and the fees, they're very different. The block subsidy pays you 12.5 or whatever it is right now, no matter what the exchange rate is, no matter how high it climbs. So the exchange rate climbs to, um, I don't know, it doesn't matter anything, $100,000 per Bitcoin, then it's 10 times higher than $10,000 per Bitcoin. But the block subsidy does not change, still Mm 12.5. So you see then the security budget went up by 10. Because now mining is way more profitable than it was before. You can buy more stuff, you have a greater claim, you have a greater purchasing power. You can get more stuff, you can get more houses, you can get more shoes, you can get more whatever, lumber, restaurant food, you know, you can get you can get more stuff. But with fees, it's really not like that. When you pay, when the miners earn fees, it's because someone else paid. And so you cannot just say the exchange rate goes up and then people willingly at the exact same time become you know, the price of Bitcoin goes up by 10. It doesn't mean that you become 10 times more willing to pay, process a payment in Bitcoin relative to Visa or cash mm-hmm. or something else. It doesn't change any of the, rel- the relative factors of the payment um, world. So uh, it actually, I think it the fact that it is, priced in satoshis per byte is actually misleading it's one of the things that i tried to fight against in the post because it has to be in satoshis per byte because of course the software doesn't know the exchange rate without getting it from somewhere some exchange who's to say that exchanges run well or who's to say anything else so the software doesn't know how to price it in dollars per transaction because the transactions can take any number of bytes and it doesn't know what the exchange rate is anyway. It doesn't even know if you're, are you, if you're American, you know, when you download Bitcoin Core, you could be living in Europe or you could be living in Japan. Obviously, you know, you could build user-friendly software that tries to do these things, but fundamentally the fees change as a result of people's willingness to use the payment network, the layer one payment network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're driven by that. And they, if the exchange rate goes up by 10x, then people won't suddenly want to pay 10x more for that. They'll they'll reprice it so that it's always it's the same dollar amount that they were paying before. So if there's a hyper Bitcoinization world, 
it's true that there won't literally be any, wouldn't literally be any dollars in that hypothetical scenario, but there would still be some unit of purchasing power that it's comparable. You could price it in hamburgers or something instead. You could just find something that costs about as much as what a Bitcoin transaction is now. And that would be what it would really be. It would be something like, do I want to give up one hamburger to use <laughs> the layer one Bitcoin at the current fees, you know, or at some rate. So uh, I think it really is priced in dollars per transaction. And I think the security budget really is in, in dollars. And again, that's not to say that it's literally in dollars. Uh, in fact, that's, it's a way of trying to get around the fact that all these exchange rates exist and they keep changing. So just put it in one, one unit. People yeah. understand because those exchange rate fluctuations confuse what's really going on. And so, uh, so there's a difference. The, the block subsidy, the 12.5, does. It, we do get, that hits for full force no matter how high the exchange rate climbs. But the fees do not. So how does this problem alleviate in the long run, do you think? Well, I, you know, I post about how the layer twos need to absorb more transactions and then they settle the layer one. Um, and one of the things that is problematic about the piece is that it does touch on this block size limit question because at the end I say, well, hypothetically, what if you had the huge block chain um, then and you charge and it was like a visa chain and it processes as many transactions as visa pro processes and it charges a similar amount, then you would actually have much, much more. Um, and this inevitably causes it to intersect with the block size debate, which people already have made up their minds about one way or another. And so it's very difficult for me because I have a third, I have a very different point of view that's very different from both the mainstream small blocker point of view and large blocker point of view, but I bring up that you could have merged mine sidechain, which is a large block sidechain that um, where it does not require anyone's full node to do any more work, which I think is the major complaint that small blockers have about large blocks, that it requires a hard fork and that it increases the cost of running a node. So you can avoid both of those, this optional sidechain extension block and at the same time, it would have to settle the way blind merge mining, which is something that I developed, the way that works, the miners, um, the main chain Bitcoin, CHA256 miners end up getting all the revenues from all the side chains. Uh, there's like a two-step thing, but they end up with all of the money. So, so that is, I, I, but I don't... I'm not trying to say that that's the only way. I mean, I, I point out, I, I list Lightning Network and Merge Mine sidechains as two um, ways, but I do say that Lightning will probably be, I, I'm not sure exactly how Lightning will be used uh, in the real world. I'm certain that it will have a lot of uses, but I'm not sure that really the whole scaling Bitcoin to many uh, to worldwide adoption is is the lightning use case. The people who invented the lightning network never claimed that it would be like that. They said that it would allow a lot of transactions, but they know, of course, that to onboard people, you need a layer one transaction. And whenever you need to edit your lightning channel, you need another layer one transaction. Even if you want to do these loop out submarine swaps things, those 
you still need some layer one transaction somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And um, even uh, like Jack Mallers, who's done probably the most for like the user-friendly lightning experience, he kind of transformed it into this thing where people are paying, if I understood him correctly, and I perhaps I did not, but I tried to, I think his uh, scheme is something like the merchant wants Bitcoin. And so he's really the payment processor. He's like the point of sale terminal. People pay him in fiat through his app with his, like a debit card. <laughs> and then he pays the merchant with lightning. So he's, so even in that, that case, that is uh, it's very user friendly. But it isn't like using Lightning, like uh, you know, um, the way most people envision it. For like the full the full circuit of the economic transaction, it's still like half mm -hmm. fiat. And that's no critique, really. I'm just, you know, I think that was probably it's probably Lightning is this. You know, I also worry like is Bitcoin really hard to use for for people already? Lightning, you need you need to be online to receive money. You need to interact to receive money. Whenever you either spend or, or receive money, you have to sign a new message with your private key. So you have to do a lot of work. Um, it's possible that, that will, all these things will be um, abstracted, fixed, but, but uh, the sidechain doesn't have a lot of those properties. You can onboard people without layer one and you do not have to be online to receive money. And so it's obviously a big song and dance whether or not people believe that side chains are viable. Uh, I'm kind of kicking that conversation out, uh, which is perhaps a little unfair, but I did want to end it on an optimistic note because I do not believe, contrary to a lot of people, a lot of people did think that I was saying that the end is near and we should all give up. We, first of all, we have a very long time to figure it out because the block subsidy doesn't have for, for a long time. Although I think, uh, let's see, I printed it out somewhere, yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I talk about how big it is right now. Even if you include the block subsidy, the 12.5, and what did I do? I printed it out, what was it, last year? 2.6 billion? Yeah, uh, 2018. So in 2018, 2.6 billion per year. That's for the entire year. That's all the money that we pay to miners that's all the money that miners spend by that long conversation we had before the marginal cost equals mm -hmm. marginal revenue. It's all the money that we pay to miners and it's all the money that the miners spend fighting amongst themselves to see who will produce the blocks and spend on SHA-256. So it's also the amount that any attacker has to spend to buy theoretically 100% of the hash rate or do something very similar to that. So that's the only two two point six billion per year really isn't it's a lot it's an awful lot of money, but it's not that much. I mean, I don't you know, I don't know what Calvin Ayer's net worth is, but I think it's more than that. <laughs> so if you wanted to spend more, I think he has more than I doesn't he have three or so billion dollars? I don't know. I have no idea what I'm talking about, people, but he's a billionaire yeah, I'm not kind. I don't know how much I don't know how much money Roger Veer has. I don't know how much money I mean, we know that what is it, Michael Bloomberg? Uh running for president now everyone knows that he has whatever 60 something they, billion dollars so you know that's for the entire year and that's with the security budget included so i think this is another problem with the piece but of you know problem with how effective it is that a lot of people have this mindset that finally i have bitcoin this is this immovable object 
this anchor of absolute truth in my life and I can build my whole life on this foundation and no one can mess with your stuff and the Bitcoin not affect Bitcoin user not affected meme that it's one of my favorite memes of all time. Now we can't even do it anymore because it seems like after Segwit2x and stuff, people seems like people are constantly being affected by things and, and constantly needing to do various things. Well, um, but uh, I think this challenges that this says, well, it just tangibly costs some amount of dollars to 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 mess with Bitcoin and potentially shut it off. But I wanted to say I liked so when I ended the piece with this whole what if we had Visa uh, transaction fees, I wanted to kind of end it in a way that said, we could amp this number way up if we could do something like that. And there are many other things as well that we have. Um, uh, there are a lot of other layer twos. I like Ruben Thompson's state mm-hmm. chains. I'm not sure that they, I don't actually quite remember. Um, I think with those, see some of these have the property that they do not pay the fees to miners. So LN, you you can tolerate a higher layer one fee and with state chains, if you need a layer one, you don't need it as often. So you can pay more, you can pay a higher layer one fee, but um, the fees that are paid when you do your lightning fees, which are lower, those go to the lightning node operators who front working mm-hmm. capital. So they don't go to miners. So that's fine, but it's good for them, but it's not good for the miners or the security budget on which the foundation depends. So yeah, there's kind of a lot of stuff in this little piece, uh, but it was very fun to write. And I think, yeah, I think it was a mistake. And then, and then you were saying online, like, you know, you were like, oh, this is like just all those people are complaining at it. That's just FUD. And those people don't know what they're talking about, but there are a lot of people do take this point of view that I expressed. Uh, including people like Rusty Russell mm-hmm. in particular, who's like a big, huge lightning guy, huge Blockstream guy. Um, I think he's got quite a, a resume, in fact, and a reputation. He's a super nice Rusty. guy. <laughs> and then he wrote he wrote that thing about like, people should worry about it. <laughs> so it was that in particular where I was like reading your tweet and I was like, oh, I have to push back on this a little bit because um, there are a lot of people who do- Worry about this. Um, who do think about it and I think it is a case where, you know, I, I if I had to guess, I would say that probably, even though I, you know, I pointed a lot of this stuff out in writing a lot, and people have <clears throat> have taken it however they however they like. But I wrote uh, I, some things I write about. You know, one of the thing I wrote, things I wrote about is that how Satoshi was the one who put the one megabyte block size limit in place because people write about how Satoshi's vision was <laughs> the unlimited block size, but in July 2010, he was the one who put the limit. Yeah, in noticing place. the p- potential <laughs> so, for spam attacks, so, right? So, well, yes. Then you can read and talk about which justifications he felt comfortable writing on the forum post and and to what extent you believe any of them, um, which is, uh, those are very difficult questions to answer. But... Yeah, it, it seems as though his original vision really was for it to be processing lots of payments. And he really didn't, he really was not concerned about the block size getting very large. And then at some point, he sort of had a crisis of confidence about that. He put this limit in, and even though he could have coded it to expire, or he could have coded it to 
he could have put it in permanently and then coded it to expire later, like right before leaving. He didn't. And um, that's not to say that either of those, you know, either the large blocker or small blocker point of view is right or justified by Satoshi or that Satoshi was right or that Satoshi never makes any mistakes or any of that. But um, it seems as though that's kind of what he thought. And so when the one megabyte limit was put in place, it was thought that other things is a point that Hal Finney makes and other people make that. And Peter Todd made this in a funny video he made in 2013, the keep Bitcoin free mm -hmm. video, which I think is great. It's a really charming little video, but it's also a cool piece of like Bitcoin history. And um, so you can look it up on, it's like two minutes long and it's like got a, a funny little, xylophone and like cartoons and stuff it's great it's and so they're saying like we could have other stuff on top and people would only use this to settle and there would be layers and one of the all that this is this is related to the point that i was trying to make earlier which is that btc could make an error and destroy itself and one error would just be if no suitable payment scheme ever materializes um, uh, but again at probably at that point someone would just hard fork again and do the go run with the block size strategy after at that point and some so you know it's still then you'd have the btc utxos they'd have to compete with these bch bsv utxos but they'd probably still do very well because i think that the money supply is excuse me the network effects are so important to the viability of money um, that, you know, even if you, if you hard forked BTC to a large block size today it would probably still do better than <laughs> the, you know, I feel, I feel bad saying this. I feel bad for the BCH BSV people often, uh, <laughs> but you know, if it, if BTC hard forked to a larger block size, it would probably do better than. Uh, this BCH. just has a network effect. Uh, just, just as like if you just you did if you did it a slightly different way where you announced it months in advance and there was a lot of discussion and it was like there really is no other way, we tried all these other things, but of course we you know we have barely scratched the surface of trying, yeah, a lot of other things. Uh, obviously, uh, one thing that I think is kind of silly is the you know lightning gets ridiculous amounts of praise and and attention. I think a lot of it is deserved, but I think. People are really like just thinking on it. There, people are just thinking. They're just thinking lightning equals good, and then they have decided not to think <laughs> much more past that. And so, as a result, why do we, we we never hear about like what happened to Ruben Thompson's state chains idea? Like we don't hear about it. I think it's really I like good. that idea too. Uh, uh, you know, it's really weird because you need fixed size UTXOs. That's a really weird quirk. But other than that, it's better than a federated chain in literally like every possible way. It's exactly what that is, except, yeah. except much better. And they, with, with state chains, you're just trading private keys really at the end of the day. Right. The, his blind state chains, you have, they have, the servers have no idea what they're signing at all. They have no idea if it's even a Bitcoin message or anything. Um, they, it's very difficult. They have to collude with, it's very difficult for them to steal your money. They they almost never end up with it. 
they just have to, they can like reset it to the very first state. Um, so it's, it's much more secure, much more private. Um, they don't know, they don't necessarily know how much money is even in this system. It does require, a, my understanding is it requires hard, requ hard requirement for Schnorr and some other things, but so you can't currently yeah. do it. Well, so, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea, but why yeah, do you whatever, think people are apprehensive to try things like uh, blind merge side chains? Uh, oh yeah. Blind, yeah. Blind merge mind side chains. Well, um, there are, you know, I do keep like an FAQ and there are, yeah, uh, one, I have a peer reviews on drivechain.info. I have a peer review section, but I replaced it with a new one because I feel like you could boil it down to these two objections. The, the big one is the, with uh, merge mine sidechains, the, there's this complaint about miners being able to steal the sidechain funds, um, which is technically true, but very misleading because it's, you know, it's like uh, well, I, one analogy I give is that it's like it's like it's like someone asking, "Does the free market allow entrepreneurs to go bankrupt?" Because it does, but that's kind of the whole point. You know, the the whole point is that the threat of bankruptcy is what enforces quality, um, and so the uh, the it's you have to induce you need some way of 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 needing of, of keeping the junk software out of the system and the i you know like the, it's just, it's kind of frustrating because when i wrote the post in november 2015 i knew that people would have this misunderstanding about it and so i wrote a large section about it back then and if i read it now it really holds up very well because <laughs> it's just it is all the stuff that everyone this line that the miners can steal line that people complain a lot of people think that oh if miners can steal then that means there's there's 100 bitcoin in it and then the very next block the my why wouldn't the miners just take that money and give it to themselves Im immediately and am i assuming that the miners are altruistic the answer is absolutely not i'm assuming in fact relying on the miners to be as self-interested as possible as possible um so in their self-interest, they wouldn't steal because it would. Well, first of all, it's much more difficult to steal than I think people really appreciate. They have to, the miners have to work together on a given withdrawal. They converge on a withdrawal over three to six months. So it, <laughs> they can't just like withdraw the next block. They have to announce this thing and then wait a very long time uh, with it hanging in the air the whole time, like very visibly to everyone that the withdrawal that they are trying to ram through does not match what is reported by a sidechain full nodes, the full nodes of a given sidechain. So, so that's, you know, that's kind of one of the points. I think a more important point to make though, is that it's, if we wanted to change drive chain, which is my sidechain's idea um, that we're talking about is if we, if we wanted to change it so that it would be impossible for miners to steal funds. That would be extremely easy. That would be like one line of code or something, or even zero lines of code, because it could be just redrawing the definition of Bitcoin to include 
all the side chains and then your full node would be responsible for every every side chain all the side chain code and it would be it would be more like ethereum where people could run all this code and you'd be responsible for all of it and the validation costs would just grow and grow and grow uh, forever and that's why it's it's bad and we need a way for your full node to ignore the what other people are doing on other sidechains. So that's really the, the heart and soul of sidechains is your sovereignty as a user. It's really it's really trying to prevent funds from being stolen in in a sense of creeping this other uh, code in or stuff like these hard fork campaigns like Segwit2x. See, if you had sidechains, there wouldn't be any need for Segwit2x. People just make a sidechain that had large blocks. They'd go off on their own system in this ideal in this ideal world. I'm pitching. They just go off and uh, be opt in, right? And then they would they would never need to hard fork the entire network. So you'd stay. People could stay in their small block world, but the people who wanted to go to large block world, they would go over there. And then you just have two separate worlds that interacted and they share 21, 21 million coins, but otherwise they don't care as much about what each other do now um you know how is it the case see it, it if with altcoins we already have that situation but with sidechains you need to have it to be the case that they share 21 million coins so if some people acquire the sidechain coins they and they want main chain coins they need to be able to get them back if they are brian armstrong gives them 20 btc or it would really be something like if brian armstrong gives them 20 you know uh, drive to dash BTC or something, you know, a side chain in the second drive chain slot or something. It would be slightly different. The same way that Liquid has LBTC, mm-hmm. um, you get that. It, but they, but it would be very much like BTC because, like LBTC, it has to trade at par with main chain Bitcoin. You have to be able to redeem these twenty Bitcoin that you got from Brian Armstrong because he loves large blocks so much, or Roger Veer, they give you, you know, they give you 40 Bitcoin. You want to be able to say, okay, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I want 40 on, you know, the Luke Jr., <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiniest blockchain in the world, 350K, whatever blockchain. So you have to be able to exchange them one at a one-to-one rate. And how can you do that? Uh, is the big question of sidechains. And one easy way is just to make it so that you actually check, you check every sidechain's rules and all their software, but that just, that just cheats and just staples. It just, you basically got a hard fork. You know, that's basically just hard fork into a larger block size, just in a sneaky way. So you can't have that. So what you need is some way of uh, what what would Bitcoin Core, the main chain full nodes need, is some way of figuring out whether or not the, these withdrawals are real um, that doesn't involve caring about anything else <laughs> that the sidechain might do. Because you don't care. Yeah. And well, yeah, this, the way it works is this SPV proof that this is like a, a much older thing. Satoshi invented it, and then Blockstream wrote a, a paper about it in October 2014, which is that... It's easy to only check the work, as we were explaining earlier. The headers have all the work. The headers are just 80 bytes. That's four megabytes per year. 
very, very easy to check. And that was where all the effort was placed. Uh, so it's very, very unlikely that someone would go through all that effort to create blocks that were invalid, although it's certainly possible. Nothing stops it from being possible. And it has occasionally happened by accident. It happened in July 2015, I think, around the 4th of July. There was something funny happened where someone actually, the miner, created an invalid block that had the same proof of work. <clears throat> that had valid proof of work by accident on main chain mm -hmm. BTC. Uh, so it does occasionally happen, and it could happen, and that is why running full nodes is important because you need some negative feedback loop to prevent that from taking everything off the rails. Um, so. The point is that the yeah the way to check the withdrawals is with some SPV proof and the SPV proof that I use is I just say every I just say every time a main chain block is found that counts as an SPV proof. So this is a little complicated because what I had to do when I invented drive chain was uh, acknowledge a lot of the previous work, but also undo parts of it that I didn't like. So if someone is coming at it fresh, they will not be able to really understand. <laughs> what I'm talking about because I would I would introduce things and then I would say why I don't do them and that would be confusing for people. Uh, but I guess the best way of explaining it, I have this funny little train metaphor, but there's like a train going from New York to Los Angeles and the train, everyone's withdrawals and in this individual withdrawals in the side chain, they're like passengers on this train. The train leaves once every three months. The passengers get on the train and then everyone can watch as it very slowly, in full view of everyone, this one little 32-byte hash withdrawal moves slowly from New York to LA. And um, there's many other details about it as well. But basically, what I'm suggesting is that the miners would not want to allow, <clears throat> and there's a big difference between just miners not thinking about it and miners thinking about it because if they don't think about it, they have pretext to say it was a mistake or that someone snuck something by. But if it's very slow and they can only do one at a time, then they are endorsing it. They're in fact endorsing it. It cannot, it, there's no way it can go three months on this long journey without all the miners consciously saying that they have no problem with this hash. So this hash is conjectured and then if it, if miners have a problem with it, they could stop the train or even send it yeah. backwards. And after six six months, the train just you know evaporates. So how would they do that? Would they would they just reorg or? No, that's that would not mm -hmm. work at all. If they reorg, then it would affect it would be affecting the main chain, mm -hmm. which is the whole design criterion. Is that someone should? In fact, as a soft fork, you should be able to not even upgrade your software to any code that had drive chain in it at all, and. And it should all, everything should still yeah. work for you, right? So you shouldn't even have to notice this. <laughs> so we, reorgs would be people noticing it, and mm -hmm. that's no good. So, but there is a inside that I have this little game where each withdraw, these withdrawals show up. Side chains have there's, you know, it's kind of hard to explain um, to a wide audience because I don't know what background knowledge they already have. But drive chain kind of makes 256 slots. It says that you could have 256 side chains if you wanted them. And then you turn one on. There's, has, there's some hash commitments to the software so that people can at least know <clears throat> if they, someone says, 
if, if Brian Armstrong says, this is funny because this is happening now. This is the live by the fork, die by the fork problem. If Roger Veer says, this is BCH, but then Omri Chassé says, this is, this other thing is BCH. How do you know which piece of software really was the sidechain? So they kind of have that at the very beginning. You get to hash the tarball and the GitHub uh, latest commit. And you can, those are all optional, but highly, highly recommended. <laughs> because uh, there's no real way to enforce software has, Bitcoin Core has no idea what you, you know, are doing with your side chain, but highly recommended that you do those things. And then people deposit money into it. It all rolls into this output. Uh, this, this Bitcoin, the money goes into this <clears throat> box. <clears throat> and then if you want to withdraw, um, the sidechain will assemble a transaction that pays out all these people. So if you have 17 different people that want to withdraw the sidechain software that we wrote, it will automatically figure out what to do. It'll say, select this, select this box and pay out these 17 people. And here's the transaction that does that. And here's the hash of that or a hash 32 bytes that correspond to that. Those 32 bytes can then be proposed. Anyone can do this at any time. They propose these 32 bytes and they, those 32 bytes will stick around for six months and then they expire and go away. But when they're proposed, miners can, there's a little score and there's a score. And if the score goes up, they can move the score up by one each block or keep it the same if they do nothing or even move it down. They can upvote okay. it or downvote it once per block. And if the score climbs up to 13,150, which is three months, then you can Three months worth of blocks? Three months worth of main chain mm -hmm. BTC blocks. You can then, if that, once it's in that state, you can include that withdrawal transaction that pays the 17 people. Okay. So there's delayed gratification built into it. It's yeah. extremely delayed, yes. And this is, yeah, this is why Adam Beck often calls it the slow <laughs> return. He is the, basically the first person, even before me, to identify that that was, even though I designed it, he was like, this is what really makes it different and makes it, sort of what makes it work, which I think is, is correct. Um, now, if you can only, within each sidechain group, there's 256 slots. So if you propose two withdrawals from, from a given sidechain at the same time, only one of them can get, can move up and score. The others automatically move down. So it's extremely rate limited. Not only can, it does it take three months, but you can only do one withdrawal per three months. So it's very, very slow. And so this is to address the, this question of, well, how do I know the miners won't steal the money? Well, it's very difficult for anyone to get any money out, let alone the miners. Um, and uh, but the, the other angle is that it's very difficult. It's kind of like uh, you have a prison metaphor in some slides that I use where there's like mm -hmm. these gates, you know, these transparent gates with chains and you have to go through 13,000 gates to get out of the prison, you know, because some people have to get out, the employees, the lawyers, they have to let people in and out of the prison. But, you know, they have buzzers and things, you know, when the door opens, there's a buzzer and you walk through the next gate and you can't just waltz out. They have, but, it, but it nonetheless is possible to leave. Certain people have to be able to leave the prison. Eventually, unless you're sentenced to life, you know, your time is up and you have to get out. But the prisons are the side chains 
and they they generate money for they generate money for the miners. They have transaction fees, and they should amp the exchange rate because a token that can do anything <laughs> could do anything. It's more useful. Um, should yeah. be worth more. Yeah, it should be worth more. So by attacking a popular sidechain, it should decrease uh, actually miners' revenues. Maybe not by enough, but perhaps um, it's. You see, this is where it actually depends. I have a meme on drivechain.info. I have memes. <laughs> I think they're some. Of them, some of them are made by other people. Some of them are made by me. I made one of them. One of them that I call skimming the vital few. I'm looking at them right now. It's... And. Yeah, do you see this one? There's one with like a little bell curve, and it's called skimming the vital few. And most sidechain designs will be terrible. And so the, the design criterion of drivechain is that only a few will actually be viable enough. It's like most businesses, of all the theoretically possible businesses in the world, most would fail, you know? But we, in the real world, we interact with only the ones that yeah, succeed. So certainly it's important for people to understand that they're taking a big risk at first, but if the sidechain does become popular or if it just has some theoretical justification for existing, like for example, a Zcash sidechain that people just use to like launder their toxic sludge coins that they know already that someone, someone knows that they own these UTXOs. So they're doomed. They can't, their, their privacy is already lost. What can they do? They can't, you know, they can try to send them to themselves. You know, you can see like blacklisted coins. You send them to a Zcash sidechain, and then now what is people going to do? When they come back, no one will know what happened, where they were going, you know, what happened to them in, while they were in the Zcash sidechain. So if a sidechain has some theoretical reason for existing, you see, there's a problem with Zcash, there's a problem with a lot of the crypto, is that it allows inflation. But DriveChain does the accounting for the 21 million coins. That's one of the few things that is checked across all the uh, all the chains. In fact, it must because there is no way it could they could be valid Bitcoin transactions if you could pay 10 Bitcoin into some mysterious script and then get 15 back out. Every other node would right. reject that. So, um, so there is no possibility of inflation with. Uh, in the, the broader system, someone could easily make a mistake on a sidechain where they accidentally created inflation. That would lead immediately to the death of that sidechain because everyone would run. There'd basically be a bank run <laughs> and people would withdraw their money. But you see, then what would happen? The developers or whoever and the promoters, they would be blamed for that, which is very healthy because then someone would make a new sidechain or all the existing sidechains that did a better job would get more credit for doing it the right way. So it's a very healthy anti-fragile thing. Yeah. Well, um, so that's the, that's the idea. And uh, many of these, you know, I don't think, I think it's, you know, the Ethereum concept that whatever, how bad, wherever bad your code is, <laughs> will will support it a hundred percent. That has, that definitely has pros. That is, you know, that has advantages, but of course then you have something like the DAO and then they did have to, hard fork the whole thing or reorg the whole state thing. State transition. So it has its pretty big disadvantages as well. State so, transition. Um, yeah, right here, state, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have some yeah. euphemism. So the, with DriveChain, what you, you want is the miners can steal because that what that means is that it's, some, it's not your problem. That's, it's like, you know, sorry for your loss. 
that's that's what Bitcoin kind of means to me, really, is that some other people tried some weird thing. It didn't work out. Tied off. They yeah. lost their money. But miners can't steal any money that's not deposited into a drive chain. It's completely unchanged for every. So the way it is now, it's if you're just if you just like using layer one, you have really no basis for <laughs> complaining about <laughs> what other people do. If other people are allowed, this is, I asked this question to a lot of smart people, including Peter Weil and uh, Andrew Polstra, and I because we're we, we talk about these types of things from time to time. And I remember I asked him in Amsterdam, I was like, well, you know, you think that people should be allowed to sell their BTC for US dollar, right? You know, yes. And you think that people should be allowed to sell their BTC for, you know, Litecoin or Ethereum or some other dumb project. And of course the answer is yes, because it's your money. It's your sovereign money if you want to sell it and buy something else with it you know that must be allowed but all i'm saying with drive chains you should be allowed to spend it to a weird script <laughs> and uh so but apparently that is that is people just that is the main sticking point for people they they really think because miners can steal it's just three words right. <laughs> and so there's actually it's packed with nuance it's easy you could easily change it so that Miners couldn't steal, but that would be a mistake. That would be a much, be a more horrific mistake. Sacrificing latency and the ability to download a full node. You would, yeah, it would, it would turn every everyone's weird pet project into a mandatory hard fork of Bitcoin. That's a nightmare, uh, and especially if you if you don't like large blocks, we're way past that. Now you not only have to download everyone's block data, but you have to perform whatever weird computations they think you should perform. Um, and the, the other angle is that it's not its not actually very easy for anyone to get money out of the system because you can only do it four times a year. <laughs> it takes forever at, at most. If, the, if they fight and they start moving this train forward and back, it could take six months or never right. <laughs> because it expires after six months. So you could never, you could have multiple <laughs> attempts to get a train from New York to LA that all fail. Uh, and at which point, no one's money is everyone's money is still safe. It's all protected by the respective full nodes. So if there's dissent, it just maintains the status quo, which I think is great. Usually, this leads people to believe that isn't that such a dumb idea? Money will never come back from the side chain. No, who would ever deposit the side chain? And how would I ever get my money back? So why would I do any of this? This is a dumb idea. But that's very easy to fix. Um, in fact, we already did it. It was the origin of uh, Andreas Brecken's project Sideshift.ai, which now is like a shapeshift mm -hmm. competitor. But he just, you know, it was originally, I was sort of explaining this little idea to him and he kind of coded it up in like a weekend or something. But the, the idea is that you'd have someone like, you don't need a shapeshift or whatever, but for user friendliness reasons, people would probably do something like that. You could do, um, you could do it completely with crypto and with atomic swaps and things. But you'd have on the side chain, people would, they would basically sell, they'd go to something like Shapeshift and instead of selling at a complete one-to-one -one ratio, they'd sell for like 99 cents on the dollar okay. or something. So they'd say, I don't want to wait three months. I have, Brian Armstrong gave me 20 BTC, uh, 20 large block BTC, but I want a original main chain BTC. I don't want, I don't believe in drive chain and I don't believe in large blocks and 
I don't believe in whatever, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so you'd say, okay, so I tell you, okay, well, look, here's what you can do. You can put your money on this train and hope for the best. It might get there in three months. And the, or, or you can go to, you know, sideshift.ai or whatever, or shapeshift.io or whatever, and someone will buy them for you, you know, basically immediately. And they'd be earning time value of money because they'll they're taking this that. would be very competitive. They're taking that risk. You see, anyone yeah. can do this. Anyone, right, exactly. Anyone with mainchain BTC could do this. They take, they assemble everyone's transactions in a big pile, and they may own many UTXOs. Um, they may own like twenty thousand UTXOs of various shapes and sizes on the side chain. But when they withdraw, they're just going to withdraw the sum, presumably, to themselves. So when it comes back on the main chain, it's actually already shrunk. Every, all the entire activity of the three months from all these people into just one transaction, which is kind of yeah. crazy. They say, this uh, Andreas Brecken or whoever it is, they have all these things, they paid 99 cents on the dollar, then they watch, <laughs> they care very much that this train thing works as advertised, but most people would not really need to care. No, well, and I think this actually really highlights the thread that I wrote that we that brought us here, right? Is like we want these UTXOs that have more utility because uh, then we'll drive fees up on the main chain. It seems like, at least the way you're explaining it, these side chains would do that. And yes, the side chains all pay. I mean, it's possible, it's theoretically possible to have this is like the goal of side chains is to let people try all of their crazy ideas because it's like a Friedrich Hayek thing. Try whatever idea you want. Something will work, right? People were skeptical of Bitcoin when it first came out, blah, blah, blah. But it would be terrible if you, you weren't allowed to try this or that. Who knows? You know, society is built on crazy people trying crazy things. So you could, the, there's a lot of flexibility. You could make a side chain that has proof of stake. You could make a side chain that has a different <laughs> proof of work. All of it would be very weird um, and possibly a waste of time because the main chain miners, 51% of main chain miners can always, in all circumstances, filter out any message that they don't like. They just have to not mine on any block that has that message and that's all they need to do. So they, that's already a given. So I don't know why you would involve more people. <laughs> it's like more people because ultimately when you try to move back to the main chain, you have to get through this first group. <laughs> so I find that, so even though the many designs are possible, I tweaked, uh, there was originally, of course, merge mining, which was invented by Satoshi for Namecoin. And um, I tweaked it a little bit to take advantage of the fact that in my in side chains and or in drive chain at any rate, in order to run a full node of any side chain, you must run a full node of all the parent any parent chains. So if you have BTC is the ultimate parent, and then if you have a side chain of that, you need to run its full node and the Bitcoin full node. And then you could have a side chain of a side chain, in which case you would need to run three full nodes to really understand mm -hmm. what's going on. So it goes in one direction, it's, you can ignore everything, but in another direction, everything is mm -hmm. mandatory. So in the downstream, and that's exactly how Lightning works as well. You know, you need to run your Lightning node, but Lightning node doesn't work unless you have the Bitcoin Wait, full node. So 
did Satoshi bring up merge mining because Namecoin was shot two fifty six two and he just didn't want them stealing hash power? He, yes, um, that was in the original Bitcoin Talk thread, as I remember it. That was a major consideration that people complained about the hash power being split. He said, actually, we don't need to split the hash power. We can pile it all. Uh, they can all share hash power. It's funny, in that thread, he also said that piling everything into one chain won't scale, <laughs> which is one of his big... See, you can line up all these different quotes about was Satoshi a large block or a small block, which is very fun pastime. But uh, yeah, so, yeah, Satoshi actually invented the phrase side chain with a space in that thread also. So there's a lot of weird trivia <laughs> going on in that, that name coin thread, which is very right. interesting because it shows just how open... and. It, and people are very excited about uh, Namecoin, and I, I, I'm also excited by it. I think it has potential for, especially Bitcoin has a kind of affinity with the uh, darknet, mm-hmm. and and it's annoying to type these onion addresses, and I think somehow it could, it could work. You know, the way DNS works, um, it costs a lot of money to buy domains. You have to renew them. Yeah, it's it was it's that's a really good read for anyone who wants to read about it because you can read about people's attempts to redesign a second chain that's not Bitcoin and they invent all this cool stuff including merge mining collectively in the thread and then they debate it and it's a very interesting debate if you're interested in that if you're interested in stuff like uh, proof of work versus proof of stake this is I think this is much better than that you know it's much higher quality of discussion you know because it, a lot of that stuff ended up being very quickly turned into a real project, Namecoin. It was successfully merged mined. I mean, it still is. <clears throat> and it occasionally has the hilarious property that, it's like it's happening again. I had a tweet about this. It's one of my favorite tweets ever, <laughs> where I was from, from Jeremy Rand, who's the, one of the basically the chief Namecoin guy. He's, he's, he's an awesome guy. He's a super nice guy. He's very smart. And... Um, he found out that he watches Namecoin very carefully. And after the split, the BCH, BTC, uh, August 2017 split, because of the way Namecoin's merged mining works, it um, pools were configured to do it. This is fascinating. Um, and the pools were also configured to switch between BTC and BCH mm-hmm. based on the fact that the profitability changed because the difficulty resets as we have talked to death a lot about already difficulty resets to erase all the profits. So even though BTC had a much higher price, BCH came out with a low difficulty and a low price, but then it's price currently quickly went up and, uh, and then so it became relatively more profitable. And so it was a switching back and forth. The pools kept merge mining. Um, and because, it didn't matter if they were mining on BTC or BCH. It, it ended up being the case that the hash rate on Namecoin was higher than both BTC and <laughs> BCH, which had the hilarious property because you had all those people who were saying that the, that was also around the time when the the meme of the most hash rate determines what which Bitcoin is the real Bitcoin or whatever. That meme... And the most hash rate in in a kind of who cares how it was calculated way, like the hash rate of what? 
of what the Bitcoin headers. How do you know that it's a Bitcoin header? So this view was always wrong. It didn't make any sense, but it became temporarily absurd completely because it would have claimed that Namecoin was actually the real being Bitcoin. merge mined on both. No, something that literally no one believes. It had the highest yeah. hash rate, um, and it hacked. This has been happening again, actually, because of, or I think this just happened. Uh, Jeremy just pinged, pinged me on on Reddit to tell me that it was happening again. <laughs> Because this happens when, so it's very funny because even though Namecoin, the, the block rewards were only ever worth like $5 or something, some microscopic amount of money. Uh, and this was at, there was a time when Bitcoin's block rewards were worth like $5,000 total because it was like 25 Bitcoin. It was like 25.1 Bitcoin times some small number. And it was like $5,000 per block. Whereas today, of course, it's like 100 and $35,000 per block or something. But there was a time when it was like 5,000 for BTC and then five plus $5 for a name coin. <laughs> there was this tiniest amount of money possible. And uh, yet it, um, yet it was still like 56% of the network uh, participated in this merge mining. <sighs> But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. All I was saying is I tweaked it a little bit to try and take advantage of the fa this the setup. And th what I took advantage of um, um, enables the miners to be paid. See, because when you get blind merge money, you get paid in Namecoin. You get $5 worth of Namecoin that you have to sell. But with blind merge money, you get paid on layer one, actually. So you don't have to worry about, you have to worry even less about what the sidechain is doing. And in fact, believe it or not, it's possible to blind merge money. With regular merge mining, you had to run a Namecoin node so that you would know how to assemble the blocks and collect the transaction fees and make sure that the blocks were valid. But with blind merge mining, hence the name, you do not actually need to look at sidechain blocks at all. You can sell that risk to someone else who is running a sidechain full node, which is all the people who are using it already. So the, the blind merge mining is kind of clever because everyone who's using the sidechain is already running a full node for free just to use it. So I exploit that fact and I say, okay, everyone running a sidechain node who wants to participate in this weird scheme, if you have mainchain BTC, so you have to run, a, you have to be a sidechain user and you have to have mainchain BTC. But remember everyone who's using my scheme, unlike Namecoin, everyone who uses a sidechain is also a user of the mainchain. So everyone has to have mainchain BTC to even deposit it to the sidechain in the first place. So yes, it's possible they deposit 100% of their BTC to the sidechain, but many people will have most of their BTC on the main chain and just some in the sidechain, the same way you have some in your checking account and some in your lightning. You don't put all of the BTC and you, in. And when you say like on the sidechain, is that like locked up in some? Correct. I mean, that is in yeah. the box. Just like you deposit it to this special script. So of course, it's basically still in the main chain, sort of, but it's in this state where it can only be removed very slowly. Um, and, uh, and so it's basically frozen in place. And then at that, once it's frozen in place, the sidechain credits you over there. And the sidechain starts with zero BTC and it ends with zero BTC. So it, it doesn't have its own block reward, which is a little scary. But ultimately, Bitcoin will have that fate. So we should uh, try to learn about it sooner rather than later. And so anyway, with blind merge mining, 
what you do is you have someone, Alice, has sidechain node and they have some mainchain BTC. They assemble a sidechain block that pays themselves the seven Bitcoin and fees, and then they pay 6.99 over on the main chain separately. They say to the miner, they say, I'll pay you 6.99 if you include this exact hash giving me this block, this sidechain block over here. And the miners just say, okay, because they get 6.99 for one transaction. But of course, to stop various gaming, there's all these rules. So they can only take it, there's 20, remember there's 256 sidechain slots in drive chain. So they, um, they can only take one of those per block per slot. So of course they can only find one sidechain block per main oh, chain block. Interesting. Hopefully that's not too confusing, but you see the point is you can't have someone bid 6.99 and someone else bid 6.8 and then have the miners take both of so, them, <laughs> include both of the blocks. So the that's not side chain or drive chain setup would have to compete to get their transactions in a block. Yeah, everyone who's running, exactly, all the people who want to do this on the side chain, if they want, you know, they'll start bidding it up. So they start collecting the transactions into blocks if there are many and they pay themselves, now they're paying themselves half a Bitcoin, 0.6 Bitcoin, 0.7 Bitcoin, 0.8, and then they keep increasing their bid as well because they know the miner is only going to take one and they'll only take the highest one. And then the other ones become discarded. They're like fill they or kill. Again. Yeah, they could try again next block. Um, yeah, so if, if this, this is actually a good thing. I think this is another thing that's misunderstood. If the sidechain node is very difficult to run, it actually lets people it compensates people for running it actually because they they can make the delta a little bigger. Um, so if the if the uh, it's no cost to the main chain miners, but it's a shift of who pays. So it's, it's quite a neat idea because it let's say that the sidechain blocks always pay seven Bitcoin in fees, even though that doesn't make any sense. But we'll just say hypothetically they do, and we'll say that. The sidechain node is so difficult to run. It's like this ESPN 4K broadcast sports <laughs> thing, and it costs it takes uh, it costs millions and billions of dollars to run a year. So it costs basically one Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin every 10 minutes to run. It has this, a lot of operating costs. So instead of paying, instead of bidding up when you, you when you're earning seven, instead of bidding up to 6.99, you can just bid up to six point four nine okay and then you can just say i'm breaking even and then the miner can say they can say well hey wait a minute i'm getting less than i got before but there really aren't because what they could do is run the node themselves and then they'd have to pay they have to pay the 0.5 and so they would earn seven but they'd have to pay 0.5 and they'd be back where they were starting they can of course also run the node in spv mode sidechain node in spv node and be truly blind and depraved, not caring at all about what goes in these blocks, if they're valid or not. Um, they are, at that point, they're likely to find invalid sidechain blocks, which means that they will not get paid the sidechain fees. So then they'd be, so there's actually kind of a lot of cool little equilibrium, like feedback stuff. That's kind of neat. How do we, so how do we get this stuff live? Like, um, why is nobody, well, you know, I've been focused on just making it all, and uh, basically, Cryptax does all the work. He's uh, a, a developer 
friend who has contributed to several Bitcoin Core releases. He really does all the C++. And so I've just been focusing on making it better. And uh, I get invited to talk about it from time to time if I like to talk about it with other people. But I think the important thing, uh, we have a couple test nets. So if you go to drivechain.info, you can find the GitHub and you can find there's releases and there's like a little guide on how to create, turn it on and create a side chain and send money to it and then get it back. And then in test mode, I've changed it. It's not three months. That would be impossible to test. Change it to like, uh, we make it like 140 blocks and then the difficulty is faster. So it's like only like a, a few hours. <laughs> Otherwise it would be completely impossible to ever test. Maybe. But yeah, still uh, we've been, I think we basically finished. Uh, I hate to say that because it's a cursed thing. It's right around say, the corner. But we've been, we've been, de- yeah, exactly. We've been debugging. But I'm instead going to say that instead of being right around the corner, I, it sort of is kind of done. We have to put out this release because our version is not obviously, we only put out the releases <laughs> after we've buried all the, <laughs> buried all the bodies <laughs> far away and uh, no one can see all the mistakes. Um, but yeah, we have to put out our new release and it looks pretty good. And of course, the, you know, the thing is, um, consensus is very important in the BTC community. So... One thing that many people have complimented me on is that they're like, well, you know, uh, especially Adam Back brings this up from time to time. He's like, well, you know, Paul never tried to like ram this through uh, like Segway2x style or whatever. He's just like slowly working what on it. it. So is it is a soft fork uh, necessary so, to make this happen? Yeah, it is. There is a soft fork that is required to enforce the rules about the, the three-month withdrawal and to enforce the rules, the, the fill or kill rules for the blind bridge mining. I have a BIP. And, you know, it took a while to get the BIP numbers, but it's actually a good thing because when I reread earlier drafts of the BIP, they're terrible and they're like horribly long and eventually I made it much shorter. So finally earlier, um, a few months ago, we got BIP numbers 300 and 301. So 300 is called for hash rate escrows, which is like the drive chain, the 256 slots. And then blind merge mining is 301. So that took a little while. But that was a good thing because we, you know, just made a couple tweaks to the design that all things considered were pretty minor, but they did change the way the BIPs had to be written. And my writing of the BIPs, I think, was atrocious on the first two or three drafts. And, I, you know, I made a mistake in the BIPs where I tried to, like, explain and justify yeah, everything. five-hour BIPs? Yeah, it was. It was terrible. And I was like, that's not what people want out of the BIP. They just want, this is what the bytes are, and this is what they do. And here's a list of the functions, and and then end of BIP. <laughs> so they're much shorter. They're actually very readable now. You can find them. If you go to drivechain.info, I, p- I packed everything onto the front page. So you can find the the BIPs if you just... And the front page on drivechain.info is packed with links, but... And memes. I don't think it's that long. Yeah, there are some memes. There are some great memes. Uh, I like the one with the, there's like the piano versus the synthesizer. <laughs> it's like it can do a piano sound or it can do other sounds. And I was like, oh, there you go. It's a meme. Someone else had that idea. Then I have what, I, th- I think I, some of them I've, I've edited it over the years. Some of them were Mike and Space weirdo memes. Yeah, I like the, <laughs> uh, I like the Galaxy Brain meme. Yeah, I like that one too. Um... Yeah, that's the miners can steal reaction yeah. meme. I try va- valiantly to get people to 
Avoid thinking right. about that. Um, um, I want to end it on a couple things. Uh, one of the applications of drive chain that you're working on too, the hive mind. And then, yes, that's what's interesting. I hate to interrupt, but it's, it's just such a weird, I have a very weird story in Bitcoin and my interest in drive chain really has nothing to do with drive chain at all. I want to use it for so this specific other thing, which I kind of think is a good sign because we have an overabundance of projects that are like solutions looking for a problem. I think, in the wider crypto world, you know, people are like, oh, well, blockchain, healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> and I've even been invited many times in, over the years in various contexts. You would go and someone would want to meet with you and they'd say, how can we use blockchain to improve whatever? I had somebody you know? ask me how they could improve <clears throat> so, a paper company today. I was like, ah, don't do it. Yeah. And so, but you see, this is a style of solving problems that is very strange, yeah. isn't it? Normally, and I think it, most people don't notice it, and I think it's really worth pointing out because I think it will improve your life a lot if you get on the right track with this, which is that knowledge is about problems. It doesn't like go the other way. You know, you have, you start with the problem first and then you say, what will solve this? Then you invent some new thing <laughs> or you take an old thing and a new application of an old thing. You say, oh my garage door doesn't work. <laughs> okay, maybe I need a screwdriver. Maybe I need, I don't know, uh, a multimeter. I don't know. You don't know what you need. Maybe you need to check the breakers, you know? But you start with the problem first, and then you look for the solution. But you don't say, like, how do we use screwdrivers to fix garage doors? Like, you don't know that you need a screwdriver yet. Maybe it won't help at all, you know? <laughs> Maybe it will, but it, the point is it's a weird way of, uh, but this is a thing that people are determined to do. And that's one of the things that kind of keeps me motivated for drive chain is that I have this other project that just extremely, uh, it's very high risk and very high reward. And it has very ambitious and insane. And I, it's weird because I've drawn on lots of different experts in various completely different areas. And I've combined it into this very weird thing. Um, but I believe in it a lot and i have uh, this is the bitcoin hive mind idea this is at bitcoinhivemind.com and i have that 20 minute video which I, I hope you were able to walk watch because i was able to sort of pack the point of the yeah, project it was your presentation at archipelago last summer yeah in archipelago that was yeah. really good and so yeah let's just focus on that you uh explain hive mind in the context of u.s elections yeah, the high, the, the, it's funny because Hivemind is yet another thing where it creates this general purpose thing. But I, in, again, I intend to only use it or mainly use it uh, in service of this, of exploring this concept of futarchy. It's not limited to elections, but um, I thought that would be wonderful for Anarchapoco. And I think that's probably the biggest value extraction but there's many w situations where we uh, face these problems you see um, elections is one but you know we also elect uh, board members for corporations so it's the same process of just shareholders vote but the shareholders have no idea who any of these people are if you've ever owned a, a company I used to own U.S. Steel because after the financial crisis it was like one dollar a share or something insane and it's it was like it's price to earnings multiple was like one or some absurdly low amount so i bought some u.s steel uh, 
And even, even if you own one millionth of a percent, they send you this stuff in the mail. <laughs> well, you're asked to vote for the board of directors with your microscopic vote amount, and you have no idea who these people are. And almost everyone just throws this straight into the trash because it's a waste of time to figure out. With voting on elections is um, a similar thing. So anyway, to get back to your question, there was this website called Intrade a long time ago, and it closed down in 2012. But Intrade was a place where you could bet on election results. And elections are one of those things where people's IQ points collapse because they, you know, people get, it, it's partially by design. This, the, the politicians are pros at manipulating mm -hmm. people and getting people to think that they are trustworthy and that their rivals are the devil incarnate and that uh, everyone is conspiring against them and they have to move quickly to protect their protect their freedoms or their family or their rights or whatever it is. It's always very lofty. It's never anything specific. You know, it's always a vague, vague thing. Save the children. But, and yeah, right. Uh, the children with a capital yeah. T and a capital C. Um, or the people or the corporations, right? Is never, you know, they'll never say like this corporation underpaid their taxes by exactly whatever, $13.8 million or it's never anything like that. It's vague. But the point is these people are pros at manipulating everyone's brain and you have a very small ability to affect the outcome when you vote and you have uh, no incentive to do research as a result. And so the, you leave this, we're ended up, we end up with the situation where no one is happy with what happens. Everyone hates the congressional approval ratings are low. And then you have, I brought up the Simpsons characters that the mayor Quimby and the police chief Wiggum who are, you know, those are like usually elected positions, mm -hmm. <laughs> but everyone's just like, you know, the reason that that's, those jokes are funny is because everyone kind of, you know, everyone kind of knows that actually Mayor Quimby is not too far off of what they kind of suspect their own mayor is doing, but they just kind of like, whatever, look the other way. And, and so the few Turkey, I'm, I'm not sure like in what order it's best. I would, yeah, I think the video is a good way because I like wrote this sort of script for a target audience of people that, uh, but uh, maybe it's easier if I just answer any questions you or you should frame it because you just watched it or something and maybe you know what, people would be interested in. Hivemind is a project for peer-to-peer -peer Oracle. So it's this, it's this, it's itself this weird econ statistics project for figuring out what happened in the real world. And that has, you know, I don't want to say endorsements, but I have some quotes on the front page from people like Andrew Paulstra and, and even Peter Todd um, about whether or not it's sort of viable they sort of think it is and that's the best i can do in a short podcast you know otherwise i mean the white paper for truth coin that was how I, the original the origin of the name truth coin and that that is a very long well, paper that involves a lot of explaining as to why i think that that will work but in addition to the oracle the oracle is deciding what whether or not certain events happened there's markets for betting on whether or not those things happen in various combinations with each other it produces this derivative. So peer-to-peer -peer Oracle and event derivative marketplace is like the whole thing. And then some of the 
derivatives you can make are about election betting, which are um, like we have we have these already, and I post to electionbettingodds.com. I tweet about it a lot because I find it so interesting. Oh. Um, you can bet on who you think will win various things, but what I want to do is go beyond winning and say if someone wins, what are we what outcomes are likely yeah. to take place and which and so then we just vote for whoever has the better numbers. And that's like the whole thing. Yes. Kind of, so let's a very brief nutshell, but probably you can frame it probably a lot better than well, for think- your your poor audience well, i think the a good idea would be to hone in on the one slide where what you just described where post-election you had the results where um the country would be more profitable um less people would die yes yeah i think that is a good yeah. slide you're right um yeah so i and i had before that i had like the menu i was trying to like make a joke like it's like you you go on and you're you're buying breakfast and you have a menu and you can buy an omelet or whatever you have some idea of what you're going to get and how much it's going to cost. But then you walk into the voting booth and a lot of these, you know, I've had many people admit to me because I talk about, I've been talking about this for a long time. And I say, yeah, some people do, they vote for president, but then they didn't really remember or they forgot about that. They have to vote on all these other positions, alderman and all this other nonsense. Right. So some people have admitted to me that they do like zigzags or they do whose name they like, you know, like they don't have any idea. They do, vote completely on party lines or they just leave it blank so the real one the real sad things are the that congress is actually much more important most people can't name their yeah. representative or their senator and those are the people who make the rules and they're very important and the turnout for those are laws so you have the situation where people don't they walk in to vote and they don't really even know what they're they don't really know what they're doing they remember some vague images and things and so the core idea is that they can look up and find very reliable information that's uh, very, very difficult to manipulate. Um, I would say almost impossible, which is a tall order. But the information is of the following form. As you say, you basically have in a two-party system, you could just subtract. But if you had more than two parties, you'd have columns, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, whatever, Green, Labor, blah, blah, blah. But in a two-party system, you would probably want to do is just subtract and just see the net. But these, you'd have these columns, and then the rows would be various metrics. And they'd say, like, if you vote for the Republican candidate, this is how much money the government is going to spend, like, per person. So whatever, you know, $26,000 per year or whatever it is. And this is how much, this is what GDP will be. This is what, how, much, how much money everyone will earn in the, in the entire uh, in the United States over the next few years or over the, ne- you know, over the next four years or, or the next six years if it's a senator or the next whatever. And then this is how much the value of the land will appreciate. This is what the unemployment rate will be. This is what how many people will die in all various ways, you know, plague, war, whatever, mental health. So you can just look at the numbers and you can just say, well, this group has a better number than another group. And if enough people start to do that, then the politicians will have to compete on those numbers. And, um, and there's a long precedent for this. The medium is the message, so to speak. The United States was built in a world where everything was done by the newspaper. And I can get into that. There's a lot of interesting history with that. But then eventually you had radio and FDR. And then it's well known that the invention of television changed a lot 
with the election of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. And then it's well known that Ron Paul and Barack Obama were getting out the vote via internet in 2008. And now it's unavoidably known that Donald Trump with his use of Twitter, <laughs> like, like changed the game yet again. So the game, there's a long precedent of changing the game with a different mm -hmm. medium of getting your message out to, to voters. And so this is a kind of, it's kind of aiming at that. And um, so, yeah, and these rows can be on anything, anything that's measurable post hoc. And they don't settle. The cool thing is they don't settle until after the presidency is so over. This is where so. my question is, how are those numbers determined? Are people putting skin in the game? Of course. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So I open, I kind of put that at the beginning of the slide and I say, well, here's the end result. And, and this will all be, these numbers will all be accurate and they won't be able to, we won't be able to manipulate them. And then, of course, the question is, well, that just kind of passes the buck to the, the explanation where did those numbers come from? Where they come from are these conditional bets. So someone is making a bet that <clears throat> you have to understand a little bit about conditional probability and about how um, <clears throat> asset prices work, just a little bit. But um, basically, if you bet on a coin flip, then it, you should be at most willing for the heads share, you should be willing to pay about 50 cents mm -hmm. on the dollar. And for the tail share, you should pay 50 cents on the dollar. And if you bet on a dice roll, you should pay about one sixth of a, a dollar <laughs> on the dollar and so forth. So the prices co-vary with the likelihood. Um, but what I do is you, you, you build this kind of grid and you have these joint events which is very easy to do. It's annoying because this project tries to move the needle forward in a lot of different ways at once. But ignoring other questions of liquidity and how the Oracle handles all this, which is actually very easy to do, but I'm gonna avoid explaining it because we haven't even gotten there yet if we ever get there. But this is all written down and you can check all this stuff out on, on the site if you, if you are interested and I hope you are. But the grid is you make these different events and then you say the asset only pays if they both happen. So you have what's called in statistics, the joint mm -hmm. probability. And from the joint probability, you say this pays if it's a heads and you roll a two on the dice. So make a grid that's like six units in one direction and heads and tails, two units in another direction. You have 12 squares. And then they each have something like a 12th. And if you take from this grid, you can get everything you had before and more. You can get what you had before by just summing up along a dimension. So you add up six twelfths, you get the halves for heads and tails. And if you add column-wise or however the other way is, you can get one-sixth for the dice. And so you have everything you had before. But um, in a dice and uh, coin are independent. So they're just diffused. There's just these numbers that are just the same in every cell. But if the events are related, the numbers will clump up on a line in the, in the, and some kind of diagonal line through this grid. Like it. Because it'll be saying that although some, you know, maybe something's not likely, maybe the, a good economy isn't likely and electing whoever it is, take your pick, you know, Andrew Yang is, is unlikely. They, they could both be unlikely, but maybe there's only a 5% chance that the economy will be good. 
maybe every single one of those five percentage points out of the total hundred that occupy the grid, maybe all of those are in the Andrew Yang gets elected grid. And that takes them out of the other grids. And so then this forces this line to appear. And if you know, maybe, you know, if people just Google joint probability and marginal probability and conditional probability, they'll see that it's extremely simple math to just um, get these numbers out of this grid. Yeah, it's now, of course, where are these numbers coming from? People are trading, they're betting, someone is betting, I think that because this is infinitely regressing even further, because it's like, sure, I have to say this is clumping on a line, but where's the clumping, where's the line coming from? Well, people would be able to bet. They'd be able to say, I want to pay five cents for this contract. It pays me money if Andrew Yang is not elected or if Andrew Yang is elected and the economy does well. In fact, the only way I lose money is if Andrew Yang is elected and the and the economy does poorly. That's the only way you lose. And so you can buy that, and then people are buying and selling all these things. So it's a contract that pays you, no matter what, before the election or before the primary or before anything. You're betting on these things. They won't settle until long after the pres the uh, election is over and the presidency is over because you need to check the economy. So there's a very complicated timeline here. They don't settle until the far future, but you can buy and sell them today. And so they should have different prices. And so you can buy, pay something that pays you in, it pays you more money in every scenario, except the one where your guy is elected and does a bad job. And, guy or and so the theory here is that because people are putting money down, putting skin in the game, if you will, you're going to get better uh, information. Yeah, well, you should get the best information because if anyone has any information at all, they should be willing to trade in this or partner with some rich person who will invest on their behalf. So you, and again, out of this grid, you can get everything you had before. You get the likelihood that the economy does well and you get the likelihood of everyone getting elected. Those would be the heads and tails and the dice in this. So a lot of people already only want to bet on one of those two things. So this is actually kind of, combining three completely different things into one thing, um, which is clever. There's this other thing I have to, I could say about market scoring rules and liquidity, where it's actually much, much better than you could ever imagine being possible. Not still not great, but uh, the, the whole interesting conversation in itself. Well, but yeah, you, you think about it. These, these assets will all have different price. So this is the Andrew Yang does well for the economy asset. And then you have the, Bernie Sanders does well for the economy. Donald Trump does well for the economy asset. They all have prices. And what, they can't all be a tie for 100%. You know, someone's got to have the best price. Yeah. No. And that's only if you have this one criterion. That's only on one criterion. Really, some people would be different. Some people would be better than on different things than others. Some people might have, you know, I don't know. Some people might be more likely to get us into a war, so they might be more likely to spend a lot of the government's money and have more deaths or something, but they might be better for, I don't know, income or whatever, unemployment, who knows. There could be all these different dimensions. So it wouldn't be, it still would be, when you go in to vote, you'd still have a little thinking to do, but you would, <laughs> you would there would be, 
you wouldn't need to understand this complicated world that we live in to a great extent. This idea is that what happens is that my, my sort of political theory is that it actually does mostly work the way it's designed, which is that the democracy represents the consent of the governed, but it's that the governed are just too busy to look into this economy is so complicated these days and people know that they don't have, they have no rational reason to put in a lot of research effort and the politicians are professional liars who are confusing them at every turn and turning them against their family and whatever. So they're building these weird cults because they're professionals, you know, you can't win unless you're like a cult leader. <laughs> so, um, it's impossible for people to, so the governed, the population is, you know, they're doing their best to decide what they want, but what they want is poorly thought out. So what I'm just trying to say is bring them super high quality, the best quality information. There's, if anyone disagrees with any of these prices and they're right, they can make money. You see, you only, this thing, you, you still make money if you're in the counterfactual case where you say, where you say that, um, Andrew Yang will be great, and he isn't chosen by either the primary or the general election. You're still making money, so now you're hope you're kind of hoping you're like whatever, whatever you know, whatever happens. Because if money. and to lose the money, mm -hmm. right? Um, let's not even focus in on like the granular any more like granular details. How does this work? Like, how do you envision this changing the world? Obviously we just focused on elections there, but beyond elections, of course the, so yeah, it's, it's not limited to elections and you know, it's not really limited to us. It's, it's really any policy where, um, you'd want it's, it works best when you have really measurable criteria for success. So really the best place is actually the stock market. Um, because, you have the the best criterion is the market cap of the of a corporation. Yeah, would this uh, would the stock market uh, act like it would today? You basically say, yeah, I think. Well, I think everything you, we have a lot of. I think we have actually a lot of corruption in, with uh, CEOs, and I think most CEOs are great and they do a good job. But I think this is a game that every CEO plays. Firms are not really as efficient as the economics textbook um, would imply. Uh, they do lots of clever little things to avoid blame and entrench themselves, uh, which is, uh, which I think is par partially makes some sense because you want the CEO to be in there for the long haul. You want someone like Elon Musk, maybe who really believes in the vision, but many times, you know, the CEOs are paid a ton of money and they elect their friends and the, the board is their friend and they not only pay themselves tons of money, wasting that money, but they don't run the company very well. Um, and with this, you could just say, you have one single market, should we fire the CEO against the stock price? And then people would be able to bet, well, if you fired the CEO and replaced him with the number two person, then the stock price would go up. And then you make money if they ignore you or if they follow your advice and you're right. And if they follow your advice and fire the CEO and the stock price goes down, then you lose a ton of money. In the stock. But you only lose money if you're wrong, which is desirable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it should work. And uh, yeah, I think corporations, just think about how innovative a corporation can be when it has a, a good leader, which good is obviously with a lot of, 
you know, quotation marks and qualifiers and things around. But if you have basically someone who has united people around a vision and people are no longer infighting and they are committed to one vision, that I think is a good place to start. Um, you have like Steve Jobs and you have like Elon Musk, something like that. Yes, um, sure. And that makes a big difference. Think about how big the iPhone changed. Every, no one, there was no app store. There were no apps. There was no like touchscreen phone before the iPhone. You yeah. Know? So yeah, you're. There were no tablets before the iPad, and you know Elon Musk when he he lands those rockets, you know, like like landing a pencil on an eraser. It's or something. So cool to me. It's so cool. Right. And then you're just like electric cars. America will never do it. And then he just, he just did it. You know, he just like, somehow you just do these things. And I think every company could be he's like He's so that. contentious though. I know. Yeah. He's um, crazy. No. And that's, that's fascinating. Like, but yeah, I think there's obviously so much, some people have done estimates. I have this link somewhere because I liked it so much. I have like the prediction market propaganda folder but i don't remember where i put it <laughs> but it's um but there's someone did a study you can look this up of like various um projects the government could do and their hypothetical return on investment so it was kind of tongue-in-cheek because it was done by it was done by like brookings or something some like econ style place but relatively mainstream but in framing it as return on investment they were being kind of clever about it they were like because they're like they know that's not the real stated goal of the government is to like make all this money or whatever but they were there were some things on there like global free trade unrestricted movement of labor and capital like open borders and stuff where like the return on investment is like 15 million percent or like some absurd number and there's all these other these other like there's tons of stuff that the government could do policies that would be a little different um changing why is our tax system so bad it's like the worst tax system in the, in the universe it's why you know adam smith had land value taxes and it's so stressful hundreds, hundreds of years ago and we still don't do we still yeah. don't do them no it's you know this weird bureaucracy yeah, instead a weird bureaucracy that makes it very hard to do your taxes um yeah a lot of one major function of the tax system is to punish and reward certain groups right. of people it's not really even to this is not the most efficient way of raising money some of it's just absurd the payroll tax makes no sense it's a tax on employing people it's a tax on being poor it's a tax on it doesn't it's just like nothing about it makes any sense it's like universal agreement that it should be just deleted and the corporate the, the idea of the corporate income tax is also a lie there is no evidence that most corporations don't even pay it. Even if when they do, they just take their money away from either the customers through higher prices or through their employees. There's like, there's many tax things where there's wide agreement across all many experts across the political spectrum that certain things should just, you should just delete them and just not even replace them with anything because they, they do such a bad job. Um, but yeah, we we have all these weird things. So yeah, it would be nice to um, make the tax structure more efficient. Uh, interesting. It's been a fascinating conversation. I have one last question to ask you because I always been fascinated because you have the economics background and it seems like the computer science design background, at least engineering design, 
with drive chain and stuff like that like what interests you about bitcoin more like the economic side of it or the technical side of it oh well, that's a good question um yeah it's funny uh there's it should there kind of could be a it's weird i have a lot of mainstream economics training and yet i'm like in the bitcoin world which is very funny ultimately i do think that um a lot of the disputes in economics, all these these schools, um, you know, whether or not uh, whatever Austrian economics or neoclassical economics or whatever is right about any, I think most of that doesn't really even matter because we have a kind of uh, scheme where your cash is being inflation taxed away. And so there's no, reason not to look for an alternative uh and you have a payment system where i mean silk road is a big eye-opener where it's like you can't use credit cards for that so the payment system actually is a subset of what is politically feasible and election betting is banned in the united states is heavily restricted by the cftc so this is my favorite website in trade but you could you had to go you had to wire money to this <laughs> company in ireland to use in trade um, and even though it was not a, it was a company in Ireland, it was still, you would get harassed if you did anything with it. Even CNBC would do stories about it in the United States. It's not even a U.S. company and it would still get harassed. So I'm kind of interested in, uh, it, just by being interested in election betting, I kind of became sort of more interested in, in Bitcoin. But yeah, I don't know. The I think definitely the for me, I'm more interested in the economics um, of Bitcoin than the computer science. A lot of it, I, a lot of even though I knew some computer science, uh, a lot of the cryptography and stuff I did not know at all. I had to learn when I was learning Bitcoin. I was like amazed that I kind of always knew like that there were hash functions because if you'd ever used uh, BitTorrent or something, you kind of but I kind of didn't really realize what they could do before and now they seem like, or opposed to Bitcoin, they seem way more impressive. So a lot of that stuff I didn't know when I was still getting into Bitcoin. Really what did it for me was the Silk Road article as someone who never really used Silk Road ever. Uh, <laughs> but um, just seeing that you could have people, you know, you had people who are like drug addicts and they could somehow get all of this stuff to work, you know? And they were like the early adopters on the cutting edge. And then I was like, holy crap, there must be something really interesting going on here. And there was, and it was more interesting than I could have ever imagined at the time. Yeah. Well, thank you for getting interested in this and sharing your crazy thoughts uh, on your blog on drivechain.info, uh, bitcoinhivemind.info or .com? .com. Uh, .com. But they all link to yeah. each other. I have like a lot of different, and then you can see on the sidebar, I have them all linked. So if you go astray, you can find your way back pretty easily. Um, no, this has been, Paul, it's always a pleasure uh, conversing with you on Twitter uh, and uh, in person. Is there any like parting notes that you want to get out there? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I have all the stuff on, on drivechain.info and on bitcoinhivemind.com. Can help you review? You can get the video and there's a... Can people help you hmm? review the BIPs or anything like that? Definitely, yes. I think, uh, well, I think uh, if you want to know exactly what's going on and you don't like 
you're like some weird podcast explanation. You're like, I just want to know exactly what is going on. The BIPs, I think they actually do a decent job of telling you what, what, what is technically exactly happening. And then we have releases, so you could download them and play with them. And we have, we even have, we have GUIs because Cryptex is great with QT. So we have, <laughs> everything has buttons that you can click and stuff. It's kind of a, I would dare say it's you don't have to do all this from the terminal to use. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to. Well, there's RPC call commands for, I think everything at this point. So you can do either. Well, freaks, if you haven't gone and checked out uh, Paul's blog yet, go read it. It's going to take you some time to get through, but uh, it's really helped me understand uh, a lot of these concepts, particularly uh, pertaining to consensus networks, proof of stake versus proof of work. Um, those are That's one of my favorite blog posts on any subject in, in Bitcoin. Um, ac- right, thank you so board. much. Yeah, again, it is, uh, it is, be warned that it is, writing therapy for Paul when you open it. It's me dumping these thoughts out of my head so I don't yeah. have to think about them anymore. Pushing them into your head. Yeah. So beware be of that. on the actual post, go into the comments of the post too because there's some... Some of yeah, them are great. They're... Yeah, some of them are really funny. The proof of work versus proof of stake one is funny where Vitalik and Vlad and Jaquan are like in there. And then I thought they, you know, it's uh, well, we talked about it already, but... Sometimes the comments are, are really yeah. something. Um, Paul, thank you for all that you do. I'm very interested to see uh, Drive Chain and hopefully in the future uh, the Hive Mind progress. Um, and, yeah, uh, yeah. They're, I mean, they're both pretty polished off. I mean, even Hive Mind, if you go on the site, you can see we have charts and things. We have screenshots, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of not. I'm kind of proud of the fact that I don't, uh, I try not to talk about things while they're still vaporware. So you can actually go and you know, just take a look, just look at some screenshots at least. Yeah. <laughs> some beautiful screenshots. Big fan of screenshots. That's what, uh, half the bent is usually screenshots. Yeah. Um, Paul, thank you so much for having me. Up. That's all we got this week. Freaks. Peace and love.